Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran LA firefighter and the man behind Firefight Mentality, Bo Porter. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from following his grandfather and father's footsteps into the fire service, working in one of the busiest stations in LA, homelessness, addiction, his unique experience during the COVID crisis, losing one of his brother firefighters to COVID, his own powerful mental health story, how Bo decided to become part of the solution when it came to the mental health of his department, sleep deprivation, firefighter families, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bo Porter. Enjoy. Well, Bo, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to the Grab Lives podcast. That's where I first heard your conversation, so shout out to those guys. And secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's an honor um, to to be on with you um, and just you know experiencing this journey um, that I've that I've been on, and then to to find myself uh, here now. Um, it's 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 an awesome journey. So I really appreciate the time. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, today I am in uh, North Idaho I'm at home, uh, getting ready. I actually leave in a couple hours to go fly into Los Angeles where I work. Brilliant. Yeah, I actually had some Anaheim firefighters I worked with that lived in Idaho and worked in Anaheim as well. So it's a, it's a popular place for Californian firefighters to live. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about okay. your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, start up, you know, just a full, full uh, disclosure of 40 years old. Uh, I was born in, uh, born in California, Valencia, California, which is, uh, just outside of Los Angeles. Um, uh, grew up, you know, middle class. The third generation in uh, Los Angeles City fire to, uh, firefighter. Uh, so my grandfather and my father both were for Los Angeles City. Um, and so for me, you know, growing up, I grew up in a little town. Well, it was little. It's huge now, just like every city in California, but uh, in Temecula, which is uh, the southern wine country of, of uh, California. Um, grew up, you know, playing baseball, team sports. My dad was a, a huge uh, wrestling coach, wrestler. Um, and so grew up in that kind of environment, team sports, and, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty dead set. My dad never pushed me to get on the fire department. Um, it was kind of like, it's up to you, you know, what you want to do. Um, and then, uh, was just drawn towards that career. Um, just kind of following in his footsteps, but 
making my own path at the same time. Um, the, the main thing that really sealed it for me was the fact that he made it to a lot of my baseball games and travel ball. And, and it was like, man, what a cool, cool, you know, job to have where you're doing all this stuff, but then you also have that ability to take time off and, 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 um, be a part of your family. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, very interesting now thinking about why I joined the fire department was because of the family aspect and then how it's become such a big part of me now of understanding that that's actually not really what it is. So it's, it's, it's very interesting, but anyways, um, yes, I grew up um, doing that. And then, uh, about 13, 14 years old, I, I pretty much figured like, this is, this is the job for me, um, with a bunch of ride outs and explore programs, um, through Los Angeles. Um, I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. I, I like the team aspect of it. Um, you know, the, the, uh, merit driven, um, kind of accomplishment basis that, that was in it. Um, I could, you know, drive or pulled straight from, you know, playing baseball and stuff like that of like, Oh, okay. Well, best people win. I get it. Um, and so I really liked that and that's what appealed to me. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so, I, um, started that process a lot younger than a lot of people. Um, you know, everybody likes to call it, you know, the golden spoon effect, um, where you're handed the job and nepotism and all that stuff. Um, which I absolutely hate, um, that stigma, um, simply for the fact that, you know, I, I, I busted, I busted my butt, um, you know, weekends, I, you know, being afraid of the background check my entire time growing up, there was no weekend parties. There was no drinking with buddies, you know, cause it was always like, Oh man, I'm going to have to pass a background when I'm, when I get on and I don't want to have to do, have to deal with this. And so there was a lot of sacrifices that I made um, to get on. I was hired when I was 20 years old. Um, and uh, you know, I, I checked a lot of boxes for that. Um, everything from, you know, working one season with a type two hand crew for the Cleveland national forest off of the forest service. Um, and then, uh, working as a, uh, a basically shop helper at, uh, our maintenance facility that does all the maintenance on the aerial trucks. Um, and, uh, and the triple, uh, pumping apparatus, the engines. Um, and, uh, and so there was a ton of that, you know, knowledge base going. And that was since I was 18 years old. Um, and so, and, um, I was an EMT, uh, working for, um, AMR, um, in Riverside County. And then eventually that led me to have the capabilities of going in that, um, uh, going into the, the, uh, interview when I was, you know, I'd really graduated four months before my oral interview for the, uh, for the job and, you know, I, I went in there, um, as the, one of the chiefs said on the oral board, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't cocky. I was confident. Um, but I was right on the border, he said. Um, and, and that was the thing was I, I was, you know, I, you kind of like what you talked about in your book is that when you get to that level where you're pushing yourself harder than any else, anybody else is going to push you. Like, that's where I was mentally. Like, I was like, this is, if I'm the best person in the room, then, then there's no way that they can't hire me. Um, and that was kind of my thing. And so, um, yeah, so luckily I, I was hired early on at 20. Um, and then, 
going through probation, I, I worked out um, in what they call the Valley um, for us, which is the um, um, out in, uh, uh, well, I was right on the border of, of Pacoima um, out in the uh, Los Angeles Valley there um, over the hill, as we call it, over Mulholland, um, Hollywood area. Um, worked there and then I worked in Hollywood for four months uh, as my second house. And then uh, then I would got introduced to a fire station that uh, everybody knows on our on the Los Angeles City Fire Department um, is uh, is it's got a stigma and it's uh, one of the busier stations and more gung ho guys. It's uh, nicknamed Fire City um, and uh, and it's Fire Station 33. It's in South Los Angeles um, down um, right between. Uh, or what what they call if you watch the cop shows it's south of the ten um, between um, Watts um, Watts Inglewood and uh, and Compton um, in South Los Angeles um, or South Central as they used to call it um, and then I just fell in love um, I fell in love with that place um, because the the stigma that it has held true with everybody who went there and so it was just an easy place uh, to you know be driven um, outside of myself or outside of my comfort zone, I should say. Um, and so it was, I was able to, um, really grow and, you know, early on, I, uh, my dad promoted early on in his career. And so that was originally my, my youthful goal was I was like, Oh man, I'm going to promote up through the ranks and that, you know, it's going to be great. I'm going to beat my dad to, uh, to engineer. Cause uh, he promoted engineer with four and a half years on. And I'm like, Oh man, this is, I'm going to do it. And then I got there and I worked around with guys that had been longtime firemen and uh, and apparatus operators, which is a little different um, from some departments. Our apparatus operators are who drives the tiller trucks. And then we have engineers that drive the pumping trucks. So just a little uh, background there. But um, so, but yeah, I started working around guys that had been in those jobs for a long time. And I was like, man, there there's no way there's too much to know. And uh, and so I just started, you know, trying to learn as much as I could. Um, and then had a, a great bunch of guys around me, um, just pushing, pushing me harder and harder. And, uh, and I loved it. And, and I was, everybody always says, you know, oh man, you've been there forever. And I have, I have, I've, I've been there almost 18 and a half years. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's a young man's game, but I, I, you know, I, I pride myself on, um, you know, like you say, you know, staying fit, staying able, and then also driving to be a professional. Um, my, my kind of spiel that guys will tell you that I say all the time is, um, you know, the name of the game is professional firefighter. And uh, if, if you don't see, you know, you, you don't see any of the pros, you know, cut in practice, you know, you don't see, um, you know, Aaron Judge or, or Mike Trout, you know, not hitting batting practice because they won the batting title last year, you know, they're still out there grinding. And it's like, for us, like we do go to a lot of fires. Um, we do go to a lot of incidents per day and, but you can't rest on your laurels and you kind of, you got to keep moving forward. And so if you're going to, if you're going to be a professional firefighter, then act like one, don't make every time your first time. Um, and, and so, and don't act like that either. And so, so for me, I just, you know, it, it, it kind of, it just fueled the fire that was within inside me of, of wanting to be always better. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, you know, 18 and a half years, um, 
and uh, it's it's crazy how time flies. But um, about six years into it, um, uh, of being there as a, just a firefighter, and so our our way that our staffing works is um, we have we're, we're one of the departments that have their own ambulances. All right, so we don't have um, privates that that drive the ambulances. We have we actually do it ourselves. So. Um, which is good and bad. Good for the fact that, you know, it's, it's us handling the everything, every aspect of it. But at the same time, we do wall time too. So we, you know, we don't get to dump and run as a lot of companies that transport with privates do, you know, we have to sit at the hospital for three, four or five hours until we get a bed. Um, and so, which I'll get into a little bit later about the mindset on that. But um, so, yeah, so um, six years, I was doing half the time on the, the BLS ambulance and then half the time on the fire side, which we had at, um, at my station, we have, uh, an engine and what they call, you know, it's a task force station. So that's two engines in a truck or 10 people. Um, and then, uh, an a a ALS or a paramedic ambulance, a BLS or an EMT ambulance. And then the battalion chief is there as well. Who's in charge of seven stations in that look in that area, um, are all housed in that, in that, station. So 16 total people per day. Uh, we work 24 hour shifts, um, what they call the, um, adjusted Kelly, I believe is the fancy way of saying the schedule, but it's basically, uh, 24 on 24 off, 24 on 24 off, 24 on four days off. So it's a nine day schedule, um, which makes you work 72 hours every nine days. Um, but, um, and we can get into the whole staffing crisis, but you know, where we've been basically man mandated to work, um, up to 12 shifts a month now, or 120 hours straight, um, at any given time. Um, so, but we can get into that later, but anyway, so, um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of how Los Angeles city works. Um, and then, um, so after doing six years there, half and half on the EMT ambulance. And then, um, as a, uh, firefighter as well. Um, we, I got, I was doing a, uh, controlled burn inside of a burn container, um, training, uh, operating the vent and just kind of one of the guys rolled over my, uh, leg as they were kind of going around inside the level level two, which is the flashover one where we do a little augmented flashover, um, burn my foot um, had third degree burns, um, thermal burns. And so I ended up having a, a skin graft, yada, 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 no big deal. Big, biggest thing was, is they told me I could either do light duty, which is like office work downtown, or I could go to paramedic school. And I was like, well, paramedic <laughs> school it is. <laughs> so that's one way so of I sending never, people to medic school. huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I showed up to paramedic school on crutches the first, uh, first month. But, uh, but yeah, so, it, and that just totally opened me up to a whole new, um, thing. I mean, on our, on our department specifically, there's a stigma with paramedics. There always has been, um, you know, not as, you know, one, 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 uh, task force commander, which is in charge of the, of a, uh, fire station told me once, he's like, you, you can be a good fireman or you can be a good medic. You can't do both. Um, and so that's kind of the, the overwhelming stigma um, with the department, it's changed a lot because a lot of guys have come on as paramedics, but over, over the course of my career, it's, it's definitely been, you know, that the standard, right. And so being, you know, the lack of better to force to go to paramedic school, um, it really opened up a whole new ball of wax for me and really 
saw an opportunity to really dive into both sides of that argument. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I was a, a pretty disgruntled uh, paramedic student. I was the guy in the back reading magazines, whether everybody else was, you know, concerned about the, the new drug protocols. Um, and, uh, and so, but as it grew, you know, and that professionalism grew and, and I pulling a, a quote from your book, you know, the cookbook medic, um, that wasn't my, my jam. Right. And so I dove into it and then luckily I was able to go right back to the same station right after I was done with my, uh, my ride alongs for paramedic school, I went right back to 33s and, uh, was now 50, 50, um, half the time on the paramedic rescue, half the time on the, on the, uh, the truck or the engine. Um, and so having now lived both sides, um, the one thing that's unique about our fire station, it's one of four in the city. Uh, we have 106 fire stations. So it's one of the, one of four in the entire city, uh, where they, they've developed this, uh, agreement where, the medics are guaranteed 50% on the fire truck um, and 50% on the rescue. Everywhere else, they can get detailed off. I mean, the guys can ride permanent rescue. Um, it's just really not really any protection for you um, where they basically pick the four busiest and worst medic spots and they trying to incentivize it. They go, oh, we'll make it 50% guaranteed. Um, and so that's 30 is just one of those. Um, and so seeing that and and really kind of noticing how integral the paramedic were at the fire station and how we're 50 percent of the team um it really i was really able to destigmatize it because i'd been on both sides and so when you know firemen started talking trash about you know medics and how they don't do anything i would join right in the conversation and be like yeah man those guys suck and then the guys had to turn and be like oh well, not you. And I'm like, no, let's go. Let's keep talking. You know? and, and so it really, really destigmatized it um, to the point of now I was able to see it from both sides and really show how integral the firemen and the medics could be and what a great team it could be if everybody worked on the same page. Because not only do we, you know, work well on EMS calls, uh, but when we go to fires, we're the guys, you know, there to help you, you know, yeah, we're there for the people as well, but it's like, you want quality medics around you because those are the guys that are going to, they're going to fix you when you're jacked up. Um, and so, and having that negative attitude towards them, nobody of quality is going to put up with that, you know? And so, and really showing the, the younger firefighters, like how important it is to have that integral team um, to really drive everybody forward. Um, and so that was, you know, my main goal when I started, um, as a paramedic there. And then obviously it's involved as I've kind of made my way into the, the last probably, you know, five to six years with having more time on most of the guys that are assigned there. Um, and really, you know, accepting the, the bull firefighter role and helping guys promote through the ranks and, and, and do that stuff. It's, it's really driven me to teach them about, you know, leadership and stuff. I mean, and it's so funny reading your book. Um, Cause a lot of the quotes that you pull from are the, you know, the, the fire station classics of band of brothers, you know, and, and Colonel winners and, and listening to, you know, guys like, um, from World War II and, and, and different commanders and how they talk about, you know, never putting yourself in a position to take away from your men. 
Um, and that's, that was the same kind of leadership style that I always think is like, you never put yourself in a position to take from somebody else only to give to them. Right. Never, never put yourself in a position to gain from you telling somebody something rather than it, it gains either for them or the entire team. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I've, my leadership style is and, and always leading by example. That's what I do. Um, and so that kind of led me to, um, I'm talking about chronologically here, um, chronologically up to uh, COVID. Yeah, let me jump in for a second there because uh, there's so much I want to kind of unpack before we get to that point because I know that's a very pivotal moment for you. And I think that you guys have a very important perspective of, you know, the actual death tolls that were happening because there were pockets in around, you know, the, the country that were really bad and then there were there were some that, you know, had different perspectives. Um, with the paramedic thing specifically, one of the, the kind of aha moments, and I, when I got into the fire service, I was a little bit older. I had zero family in there at all. Um, the paramedic was part of what I wanted to do. I'd actually read an article in, um, uh, Muscle and Fitness and it was a Miami Dade firefighter. And so to me, it was just a simple case of, well, I want to be as best trained in all the areas I can, including obviously the life saving. And I think one of the, the the crazy things about our generation, because I'm pretty sure we started right at the same time, 04 was when I started, was paramedicine was always already completely embedded in the fire service by that point, unless you were in the Northeast or somewhere where there was, you know, completely separate. But you make a, you know, you make entry, you do a right hand search, you find someone, you pull them out into the front yard and you leave them there steaming. That's That's body removal. That's not rescue. Rescue is then the ability to doff your gear and continue care and make sure that person starts breathing again, that their heart starts, you know, and, and then you carry on and hopefully one day they'll walk out of a hospital. But this kind of myth of our generation, this chest beating that, oh, I'm not going to do the medic side. That's just basically saying, oh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm only going to do roof ops. I'm not going to do interior operations. You know, you're just, you're saying that you only want to know part of the job. So I think that that, mentality i understand it from your grandfather's generation but for you and me and the other men and women that came on in our time there's zero weight to any argument saying i want to i want to i want to only be skilled in these areas I, i've got no interest in the life-saving part of the fire service yeah totally absolutely and 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 really and it's funny because i i got that you know slap in the face uh you know probably the only way I, w I would have gotten it because I was stuck in that mentality of, you know, to be the best at what we did was, you know, I couldn't be stuck on that ambulance. I had to be, you know, fireman all the time. But then once I really had that aha moment of being like, well, exactly what you're talking about, like I'm, I'm basically pigeonholing myself to 50% of the job. And, and to be really honest, you're pigeonholing yourself to about 5% of the job. Um, you know, let, let's, you know, take, take the, uh, take the turnout stuff for a second and speak real, but, but at the same time, it's like, you know, we have this thing where we, where, when we go to a fire, you know, the, the ambulances are actually, because it's us on the ambulances, we're part, we're kind of an integral role in, in the, uh, in what we do. So like when the EMT ambulance gets assigned to the fire, they, when they get on scene of the fire, they get assigned engine company or the roof, depending on where the bigger need is, right? Small house, maybe they'll go to the roof, maybe they'll get utilities, something like that. But they're an integral part 
as EMTs, firefighters on scene on the ambulance. So they're still a part of it. Where on the ambulance, when we show up as paramedics, we get assigned medical. Um, and so that was always a negative because you don't get to go play with the boys. You got to stand out in the street with your gurney and be ready if they pull anybody out. And that was how it was always explained to me. So I'm like, oh man, that's out. You know, we don't, we don't care about what they do. Right. And so obviously now putting myself in that position, I really took a different aspect simply for the fact that, uh, one of the times that I got hurt, um, I went down at a fire and it took the, the ambulance that was assigned medical 22 minutes to get to me because they were out pulling hose lines and, you know, jaw jacking or whatever on another uh, exposure building. And it took 20, 20 minutes to get to me. And so that always stuck in my mind of like, man, that, that ain't right. And so then fast forward a couple of years, now I'm in that position and I'm able to explain to the younger guys like, hey, like, yeah, we're medical, but instead of that being a negative, think of it as a positive because not only are we here when we pull people out and I've rescued several people over my career where the worst feeling to feel uh, for me was one of the, one of the lowest moments is after you rescue someone, you pull them to the front porch and there's no one there. And except for in this day and age, 30 people with cell phone cameras. Right. And now I, I pulled this person out. I have nowhere to hand them off to nobody to do anything. And then it's like, well, now what do I do? Right. And it's totally like what you're talking about, where you're like, I just did a body recovery now because I, I don't have the tools on my stuff. I don't have. And it's like, I really need that medic to be there to do that handoff. And so then I'm starting to teach those younger members of like, hey, man, don't think of it as, oh, boo-hoo. It's like, no, man, let's get up there as soon as possible. Basically train as if every fire we go to, they're going to pull someone out. And then full disclosure, my thing is, is if any of my guys get hurt, I want to be the medic on scene. I want it to be me that helps that guy. I don't want anybody else to I want it to be mine. And so I go, if you have that mentality that the reason you're getting assigned medical on that on that fire incident is because they want you in case they're getting it in case they get hurt they want you to to be there to save them and so that kind of mentality and this was before you know any of the mental health stuff and then now looking back it's like oh okay i see what i was doing there but it but at the same time it's like you know being the best at what you do and that's that's what it boils down you know everything that i kind of, you know, quote unquote preach, but everything that I, that I've learned over the years and led me to this point is the fact that if you're not going in every day, trying to be the best and better than you were the day before, then that isn't a professional firefighter because you're not fulfilling that first word, right? There's a reason why it's not, you know, firefighter who's a professional it's a professional firefighter it's the first part of it for a reason because that's the most important important part is that we do this for a living and so you should act like it so one thing that i've seen in myself and in so many of us is burning in our heart is a desire to serve but there also becomes an ego if you're not careful and as i said i'm guilty of it i think we're all guilty of it at some point and so you're standing there let's say it's writ 
and you're standing there with the rip pack and if you've taken your job seriously you've at least got the right gear laid out on the tarp but you want to be the guy or the girl in there searching you want to be the one on the roof with the saw in your hand but the only thing that's really the the negative draw is about you i want i want to be that guy i want everyone to see me work and so you know it's it's interesting when I see that a lot in, in Instagram now, you know, the guy's leaning on the pipe poles in a selfie in front of a burned out house. That was someone's home. But you feel compelled to let the world know what a fucking hero you are by posting it on Instagram. You know what I mean? So with I think that takes the most humility to be an excellent medical on a fire, to be an excellent writ team ready with all the right tools, thinking about, you know, okay, who's going in which side? How many people have we got in? Where are they working? Is anyone on the roof? And the same with the medical. Have I got the right gear? Have I got my burn sheets ready? Am I, am I, am I thinking about how would I doff a firefighter when everything's still hot? That's, you know, that's now serving in that role as part of a team. And I think where a lot of us struggle when we're outside is I want to be in there, but you have to kind of take a step back and go, all right, is that actually I want to be in there because that would make this whole scene better? Or is my ego struggling because I'm here in blues and my friends are in there in bunker gear? Yeah, no, and it's 100%. You know, we one of the sayings we have is, you know, not everybody can be on the nozzle, right? And and it's about getting that bigger picture. Um, and, and we have a little bit different with Los Angeles City is we have our our SOGs, right? So we have our standing operating guidelines. So every incident we go to, we have a specific role for every single position um, on the rig um, and what you do, a preset, you know, first five minutes, what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and so because of that, there's a kind of an evolution that you get where, you know, the probationary members ride what they call top, um, which is um, in the back seat of the truck. Um, not in what you call the doghouse or we call it a tiller bucket. Um, but that's the most senior guy is there. Um, and then you work your way through the positions of, um, and with each one of those positions, you get a bigger and bigger picture of that incident. I, you know, I start out, you know, as a probationary member, you're looking through, you know, about the size of a penny. And then by the time you get about five years on, you're looking about a 50 cent piece. Whereas, you know, the task force commander is looking you know, through a dollar or a poster size, you know, and, and keep getting that bigger and bigger picture of what's going on because yeah, you do want to be on in the nozzle, right? You do want to be the one throwing the ladders to go to the roof, right? But at the same time, is it not only the ego thing, but is that the only level of training you have, right? Is the reason you want to be doing that because you're uncomfortable doing anything else or that you don't know about anything else? And so I think there's a, there's a balance there of understanding Yes, everybody wants to be the, you know, the fire slater on Instagram, but at the same time, it's like, well, am I pigeonholing myself into that rookie position because that's all I know, right? Or is there something else I could be doing? Is there an exposure, right? The house next door taken off. Has, has the, the search been done already? Has the utilities been cut off? Has they done interior salvage work where we're trying to protect those things so it doesn't become a parking lot? Right. Um, and so, and so all of those things is like, you know, I kind of, I keep, you know, challenging and pushing them forward. Um, because the majority of the people that I get at my fire station are you guys fresh off probation or probationary members themselves. And so, you know, that's, and that's a whole nother talk about the evolution of, of the probationary member, but, um, it's, it's being able to really get into, you know, what drives you to be better and then how to make that 
you know, a fire ground relatable to where it's like, you know, don't, you know, not everybody can have the saw, not everybody can be on the nozzle. And so don't pigeonhole yourself into the lowest form of training is those because anybody can put water on the fire. Anybody can cut a rectangle. Right. But it's, it's about everything else. Right. And that, and that's the important part. Absolutely. Well, you talked about working in South Central. Now, like I said, I was an Anaheim firefighter for a few years. I actually got to be a Tillerman for a while, which I would argue is the best seat in the fire service, hands down, uh, especially if you've got a medic patch on your, ch- on your shoulder as well. Um, but uh, when I remember, think of Temecula, I think about further out east, a little bit more suburban. You know, um, and then I think about South Central as a little English farm boy, I was listening to a lot of albums where they mentioned South Central and it was, you know, in the hip hop region. So talk to me about that. Like, what were you seeing? And it's obviously been almost two decades now. What has been the the evolution or devolution of, of that area in Los Angeles? Uh, yeah, so and, and it's, it's funny because we really did almost come on the same time. I was December of 03 is when I got on. So 04 lines up with that perfectly. So, yeah, so. You know, back then it was predominantly um, African-American uh, when I first got there. Um, I, I first arrived at 33s in December of 04. And, uh, and so, you know, predominantly black shootings, um, you know, just a different world. It was, it was really everything I'd seen on TV and heard about in the rap songs. I mean, that's, that's what it was. It was, it was absolute culture shock. Um, but it was exciting. Um, absolutely, you know, just craziness. We call it... Um, MMDD. It's murder, mayhem, death, and destruction every day. Um, it's the craziest thing you've ever seen, the saddest thing you've ever seen. Um, and, and it was, it was just all the time. And as a young kid with no, you know, no real filter to see the world through, it was, you know, some of the funnest times of my life, you know, with guys the same age as me and we're just, you know, not sleeping for three to four days and running around and it's crazy mayhem. And it's, it's, time of your life um and and because you really have no you know nothing to compare it to because there there is no um you know life filter yet um and so uh, over the course of um you know just the years it's been it's gone from from that majority of the homes um built around the turn of the century 1900 craftsmen's um we call them shotgun houses because it's basically if you the shotgun and hit the front and the back door um because they're usually only 800 to a thousand square feet um fun fires man they're they're fun um and it's it's a great way to practice your craft all the time um and then as those burned down over the years or got bought up and de- destroyed um they started building what we see now is a lot of um two-story four uh two-story duplexes um with transitional housing and you got you know 10 to 15 um, transitional living uh, places where people are coming and going. Not many, not really sure how many are in them. Um, there are a lot of them are all sprinklered now. Um, and then, you know, a ton of homeless. There was, when I first got to South Los Angeles, there was no homeless at all uh, where now it's everywhere. Um, and so a lot of our fires now, at least in the last two to three years are all um, if not all majority of them are, are from, you know, homeless encampment fires and extending into commercial buildings. Um, and so that our, our fire level has really gone up a lot, um, based on that. Um, but, uh, and then obviously it's, it's become a lot more Hispanic. 
Um, so a lot more where before with fires and just talking about it from a fire standpoint, not a uh, geopolitical one, but uh, is, you know, majority of the homes when it was predominantly African-American, you'd have a mom and two to three children in a, in a home um, where now they have multi-generational living um, where we would get that same 8,000 square foot house where we have three outbuildings in the back and you have anywhere between, you know, 20 to 25 people living in and around that house fire. And so it's, it's the, the saves have gone way up um, as far as pulling people out um, because with that, you know, comes electrical cords comes, you know, uh, makeshift rooms, um, you know, a lot of um, just uh, haphazard construction, and, uh, and there's not really any oversight to it. So you get a lot more challenging fires where before when it was original construction, original knob and tube wiring from the 1900s, um, there was a kind of a, a kind of storybook that each fire followed because it was all still intact, the, pat the blast and plaster walls. Um, and so where now it's a free for all. You have no idea what you're walking into. It could be scabbed on for, you know, two to three families. It could have, you know, drywall. It could have two roofs, right? Or you talked about re-roofs. Um, it, the, the book, every, every fire is different. And no matter how many times you've been to that building, they could have redone it since the last time you were there. And so it's, uh, it's actually gotten more challenging, um, just based on the sheer population in that district. Um, and so now it's, you know, a whole new kind of a whole new world, um, as far as the, the level of new construction, um, with all the sprinkler stuff, but then at the same time, um, the fact that everybody's trying to catch up. And so there's a lot of, um, kind of, uh, Home Depot construction going on, uh, within that, that that's really challenging. So when I was at Anaheim, it seemed like a lot of the fires we went to were also caused by the candles from the Catholic, uh, Catholic shrines. Did you get a lot of those? Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, especially, especially in the winter time, you know, around Christmas time, um, we get a lot, um, you know, both, you know, the cold weather plus the, the candle shrines in the front, um, that the, the Catholics, the, uh, the Hispanics brought up from Latin America. Um, they get a lot of candles in the house, out front of the house. Um, and so there's a lot of that, um, going on as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, one of the things that I talk about quite a lot is trying to get to the nucleus of a lot of the problems that we see. Like, for example, you said there used to be a large African-American population and a home would have usually a mother and three or four kids. Well, obviously, that's a perfect example of multi-generational trauma and the impact of previous generations creating these kind of broken homes. And, and people will look down their nose and say, well, if, you know, these people had family units and things would be better well it's not as simple as that you know there's a lot of people of all you know colors and creeds that were born into a single family home and there's nothing anyone can do about that they were born into that and that and then their, their mother or their father or their grandparent whoever it is is raising them is doing the best they can with that situation my personal opinion having served in uniform in this country for 14 years, having come from another country and seen with kind of a, a different set of eyes than most people that were born and bred in the US, is the ripple effect of the insane failure of drug prohibition that has driven all of our mentally mentally ill, and I use that in an affectionate term, um, 
people that are driven into addiction um, into the shadows, into the hands of the underworld, empowering gangs and and smugglers and and the, you know the, all these horrific things that are happening across the border. When you have watched the streets of South Central for almost twenty years now, what is the impact of the drug industry amongst the underworld on the violence and the homelessness and some of the things that you witness from Station Thirty Three? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I think the biggest radical change um, in the drug world has been fentanyl. I mean, a thousand percent. Uh, because before you had, you know, the start, I mean, and, and historically speaking, the start of the crack epidemic happened in South Los Angeles, right? Um, in my district, actually. Um, and so so you had the generational crack cocaine um industry that you know put people on on the streets you know working on the streets all that stuff um and then you had you know most of the heroin was always downtown skid row um uh downtown la um but it was mostly you know crack cocaine and then um you know marijuana here and there but it was it wasn't until you know they opened up all the dispensaries we had gang wars for a couple of years um, with the dispensaries, that was kind of an interesting time where we had a huge Russian influence all of a sudden. <laughs> we see a ton of Russians in South Los Angeles, which was crazy. Um, but that was a, a battle when they were going to legalize marijuana. Um, that led to some great fires because um, the the uh, Mexican gangs and the Russians were battling for who would own the dispensaries. That was pretty fun um, for us. Um, and then uh, yeah. And then, and then since it's been legalized in Los Angeles, uh, marijuana, that is, um, you've seen a huge uptick in, uh, pills, uh, pills were never a problem in South LA. I mean, that was more of a USC, um, or I wouldn't say USC. I, I don't want to bad mouth them. It's, it's more of just like college age is what I'm saying. College age, West side problems where they were into the oxys and all that stuff. Right. Um, but then once marijuana got legalized, then all of a sudden you've seen this huge shift into the oxy world. And then all of a sudden it was it was the oxys. It was the um, the Vicodins. And all of a sudden it was like, wait, what? Um, and then we all of a sudden we started getting overdoses. And and it was like, well, no, they don't have the, you know, from Paramexico, they don't got the track marks on their arms. They don't have like what do you mean you're, you overdose? Like, okay. You know, like, Oh no, I take Vicodin, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, Oh, okay. That's, that's kind of interesting. That's new. And then you kind of seen it grow and grow. And then over the last shoot, over the last two to three years, I would say ah, five years, probably um, the fentanyl um, has been absolutely insane where we can't stock enough Narcan on our rigs. Um, and like, I mean, it's literally in the door panels in the front doors. Cause we just, grab it out of the door panel when we get out because we can see them on the sidewalk already. Um, and it's like, it's in everything. I mean, we, we've had, you know, grandmothers who go down to Mexico to get their blood pressure medication because it's, you know, $5,000 a month for them here. And so they go down to Mexico to get blood pressure medication. And all of a sudden you show up on an altered 60 year old lady in a nice house, you know, well-kept and you're like, you know, asking questions like, oh, no, she just took her blood pressure medication. She does every morning. And you, all of a sudden you look at her and she's got pinpoint pupils and decreased stress. And you're like, uh, all right, well, let's try it. So all of a sudden she wakes up. Oh, my gosh, what happened? And you're like, what? And so it's in everything. It's in everything now. 
And, and so um, just that proliferation of fentanyl and everything. And then, you know, obviously the new one where they're putting in the, the, uh, the tranquilizer in it. Um, we had, we've had several of those coming through the Harbor, um, through San Pedro, uh, where we get that, where it's, they think they're taking fentanyl or oxy. And then it's got the tranquilizer that acts like fentanyl, but doesn't react to Narcan. Um, and so we we're starting to see that now. Um, and it's just, uh, it's wild. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane what that, you know, really did. Cause you see the, the legalization of marijuana. And so it takes it off the table and it just becomes norm, the norm, like kind of, you talked about in your book a little bit. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I still want to do something illegal. So let me do something else. Let me dive into this where I used to just, and so it's weird how the laws kind of drive what is popular and it's all driven by the illegal illegality of the dealers right because that's what they do right they hustle so it's like if i can't sell them weed anymore because the government sells it to them free down the street what else can i sell them oh here here's some pills you want to want to get and so it's very strange on a emergency side of it of seeing the effects of policies where you know obviously policyholders don't have you know, emergency services come in to help them decide if they want to legalize marijuana. But at the same time, all of those drugs are driven by the illegality of what they are because they, the people that sell that and live that enterprise, that's what they, so it's always the next best thing. That's why there's always a new drug on the street, right? Because they're, they're salesmen, you know? And so it's just interesting from a, a medical side of it, seeing how that can really impact a community um, and, and as small as mine is like, so 33 is what we call a first in district is 3.3 square miles. Right. And so it's a pretty small area. I mean, yeah. And we, we go to a lot of incidents outside of that area, um, which is called our greater alarm, but our first in is 3.3 square miles. And so I've, I've basically lived more than half of my life for the last 20 years in that 3.3 square miles area. And and I take a lot of pride in it. And and to see how much of an impact those types of things can have on that tiny little uh, microcosm of a of a place um, is is really interesting. And so that that's why you know even from your book, you know, drawing on the the legality of drugs and how that impacts an area, you totally see it. You know, and and totally see the change of legalizing marijuana and what that did to the that little area. Well, I think the the. What I have seen, because this conversation comes up a lot, and you know, it, through the Mexican eyes, they're like, "Well, you know, we legalized uh, cannabis, and so now they're growing opium." You know, or now, obviously, the the Chinese with the, the fentanyl, and this is what happens when you piecemeal. It's like I come from a country where I would consider the greatest uh, medical program on the planet, the NHS, when fully funded and staffed properly. The idea that you take care of your weak, the young, the old, and the infirm is a beautiful altruistic way of doing medicine that you wheel someone into a hospital and the first thing they ask is their name not their social security number you know and then hopefully you would push then for a healthy um, country to use that as little as possible um but the obamacare as, as it's you know affectionately slash unaffectionately yeah. known is was nothing like that it was a it was an absolute shitty attempt at some sort of version that ended up being terrible and it's the same with this conversation. All we did was they, they said, oh, we legalized marijuana. Okay, well, I mean, that's a that's a step. 
And, you know, it's not a drug that I personally enjoy. I love CBD. I think it's amazing. But with the THC side, it's not my thing. But I know a lot of people that versus alcohol, it's a thousand times healthier than the alternative. But we're talking about decriminalization of addiction. So that means all of the drugs. And if you do all of the drugs, not doesn't mean you sell them in a store. It means that if you're caught, you and I are caught and we've got a personal use of X or Y, we don't go to prison. We get we actually get educated in this, you know, all these things are available to us. The stigma's removed, the fear of arrest is removed, and now you're far more likely to start getting help. It won't fix everyone. Some people are too far gone. This is the problem. We point at the anomalies and say, see, it doesn't work. But if you give a lot of these people, and we're going to obviously parallel this conversation with our brothers and sisters in uniform who are also struggling and leaning into alcohol and, and illicit drugs and gambling and social media and food and everything else, that we have a mental health crisis. And if you can create an altruistic problem, that, uh, excuse me, altruistic solution that doesn't demonize your poor coping mechanisms and you remove all of those customers from the underworld now they're not going to have anything to sell there'll still be other crimes of course but a lot of people will find themselves being forced to go into a more legal route for their enterprise and i would argue a lot of them are great salesmen they could probably sell cars or coffee or whatever the next thing is but the problem is is that people look at marijuana and go see and it's like no it's not see because it was never done properly you look at Portugal, which I talk about in the book, and other countries, you're missing the point. It's about taking someone who is struggling, who has found themselves in addiction, putting your arm around them and saying, look, we've got these tools for you. We're going to get you back to where you need to be versus you're a piece of shit. We just caught you with this. You're going to prison. So it's interesting. You know, the, the marijuana thing is held as, oh, we tried decriminalization. No, we fucking didn't. Not even close. You just legalize marijuana, which I think it should never be illegal in the first place. However, that is not decriminalizing addiction. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, and it's it's interesting. Like you, you talked about the the correlation between the two. Um, it it's very interesting. Even on my journey through mental health and and going through the, my department and and destigmatization of it is it is always the person that's, you know, wanting to talk about it, but not really is the one that they always reach to the extremes, right? Like, oh, we can't have you talk about mental health because we don't want anybody to kill themselves. And you're like, wait, what? Like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, and then in the, the, the story that came up the other day was when I was trying to give a drill about it. And, uh, and it was like, you know, if I go out in the backyard and give a drill on the rotary saw, say and then the rookie feels inspired and cuts his leg off am i liable no right well so what what is the difference between this like that it has no bearing of but they want to just go to the extreme you know and and so that's it's it's very you know they they talk about in in relationships they talk about you know conversation starters and conversation enders right and when you go to extremes on a relationship standpoint, it's a conversation ender every time, right? It's the same as if you were talking with your wife and then she says, you always do this. And it's like, well, there it is. The conversation's over now because we, that's now you're just speaking in, in, in a grandeur that isn't 
arguable, right? Or even approachable in a conversation. It's the same thing with, with all of these problems. And I think that's when you start to understand relationships and, and you touch on it, um, is, is about the human aspect, right? Um, of, of dealing with, with people, um, and not numbers, not graphs, not statistics or polls or whatever, just dealing with a person. Right. And, and that's, that's really the human aspect of all of these problems, whether it's mental health, whether it's drug addiction, alcohol, um, all those ones you listed, um, that's where you really have to, we get, we have to get back to, um, is, is dealing with actual human beings. One thing I've learned in this whole journey is the favorite phrase of the coward is, oh, but it's complicated. Oh yeah, for sure. That's the 100%. perfect way to discount actually having the balls to step up and try and change things. 100%. Yeah. And, and it's funny because that's a lot of the answer that I've gotten just in the short journey that I've been on. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's very interesting and very telling um, at, the same, at the same time. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to COVID and then we'll kind of move forward from there. But just before we do, I mean, like you said, a hugely high up tempo of that area of that part of the city in, in the US. Up to there, what were some of the what you consider career fires or calls leading into um, COVID? What did you had prior to that? Uh, um, well, I, I mean, one of the most notable uh, ones that I can think of uh, offhand is uh, we had a uh, a fire um, where it was it was actually during our our heyday of we had you know, the same guys for seven years, all of us together, the same crew. Um, it was awesome. I mean, you want to talk about hitting on all cylinders. It was, that was it. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, yeah, so we had, uh, we had a fire, um, I see how in depth you want me to go, but basically it was a, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a fire, um, about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, we pull up, it's a two story apartment house. Um, or, uh, I'm sorry, two, two story du duplex, um, single story, um, on fire, uh, fire showing ports, people trapped. Um, and, uh, and so me and another, uh, firefighter from the engine or from the truck, I was on the engine. Uh, we go running up do forcible entry and, uh, the entire front room of this, uh, duplex is, is fully involved where you can't make entry. Uh, and so we go over and, uh, the window's kind of high. Um, and so you talk about not, not everybody can be on the nozzle, same type of approach, um, that I took on this one. So I helped, helped my buddy hop in there. And, uh, before he went in, the cabinet told him, Hey, wait for the hose line. And, uh, and it was, it was this one, one of those ones where you're, you're pretty sure there's someone in there. Um, you know, you get the ones where it's like, yeah, you know, I haven't seen Johnny in a while. I think he's in there, you know, kind of deal, or you're still going to go ahead and do a search on stuff. But this one was the mom's out front screaming. My kids are in there, you know? And so, you know, they're in there. And, uh, and so, so yeah, so we, uh, threw him in the window, um, pretty smoky in there. Uh, and, uh, and so the, you know, getting the bigger picture, I took my, my, turnout light off and dropped it to the bottom of the inside of the window. So we could see that was the, one of those supportive roles, right? Um, I knew that if I jumped in there with him, there would be two of us in there with nobody to carry him out. 
right? Because now we're both in the window. Um, and so I stood at the window um, and dropped my flashlight on the inside of the window so he knew where the window was um, and in smoky conditions because there was zero visibility in there. And we ended up pulling four kids out from the ages of two to seven. Um, and we got all of them. And uh, one at a time came out through the window. Um, and uh, and so we handed them off um, and uh, ended up where we ran out of medics um, by the second one. Um, and so the third one came out, um, passed them off to one of the other firemen. And then I took um, the fourth one and uh, ran out and basically grabbed my equipment off the engine and threw it in the back of one of the EMT ambulances and said, take me. Um, I got the, a seven-year-old girl. Uh, she was burned pretty bad in her arms, uh, face, uh, ended up, uh, we don't do child innovations in, in LA County. Um, so ended up, uh, bagging her, um, and, uh, the, uh, all four kids made a full recovery. Um, and so, which brings me to the point on, on that fire, um, was, we all just handled it um, as far as the incident itself. Like we just did what we were trained to do and what we re rehearsed a thousand times. And, and it is a, a, a funny interview of, of the, the guy who went in and actually got the medal of valor for that one. Um, but uh, it's a famous interview because they interview him in the back of 33s and they ask him, you know, you know, what, what do you feel? What do you, what do you, you know, what do you think? You know, how are you feeling now? You know, you're a hero, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I'm just doing my job. This is what these guys have trained me to do is my job. And that's my job. And that's what I did. I'm no special. I'm nobody special. And, uh, and so, and that's, uh, it's, it's been a kind of a running joke. Um, cause this was about eight years ago. Um, but, but that, that's the, the kind of mindset that we had. Um, and at the time it was, yeah, it was, it was awesome. You know, it was, it was a great save and everything and high fives all around and all that stuff. And, and, but then you just kind of put it away. Um, and it goes in the, you know, the Rolodex on the good side, right? You got the good side and you got the bad side. And, and so you, you chalk that one up and it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you know, it, it, it makes up hopefully for some of the bad, um, on the, on the scale, um, hands down the worst call I've ever been on, um, in my mind, um, is uh and i actually had to go to court for it and that's what that it just made it even worse but uh, basically we show up um and it's actually my the my partner on the ambulance at that time um was uh my uh my buddy that died from covid um that we can get into later but uh so we were partners at that time and a classmate of mine and uh we get this call as uh burn a nine-year-old girl is all it says Right. And so, and, uh, and so we're like, Oh, okay. You know, no big deal. Probably the old, you know, pot on the stove trick or, you know, the usual burns that we get in our district, which is usually, you know, the, the boiling water on the stove for the hair. Um, cause they do for the weave, they burn the wax in it and they knock it over all the time. Um, and so that's what we're thinking mindset, you know, you immediately go to what, you know, what this could be, you start going kind of through your, your, um, Rolodex, right. And uh, needless to say, we show up and there's a nine-year-old girl standing in front of this single family um, and uh, she's, she's smoldering. Uh, she's standing there with her arms kind of in a, in a T shape, right? And arms are out, out stretched and she's got skin and, and shirt hanging from both arms. 
um, and her, her hair is smoldering and she's standing out in the front yard. Um, no, no real expression on her face. Just, I mean, I can still see her face to this day. And this was shoot probably 12 years ago, I would say. Um, and so we show up, we're like, holy smoke. So we get out, get out, you know, coax her over. Um, and all I can hear is screaming from the, from the, the house and, and yelling and they're cussing her up and down, you know, you, you stupid, this and that, you could have burned the house down. Um, and we're like, what in the world? And so anyway, so my partner, we get her in the back, get her in the back of the ambulance, wrap her in the burn sheets. Cause she's, I've been mean, basically the, from chest up is all second and third. Um, and so we're just, you know, trying to wrap her so she doesn't stick to anything and, you know, trying to talk to her and she's super calm and, and they're, they come out, start keep yelling at her and we're trying to get information from them and everything. And so I go in the house, look around and kind of get the story. And basically what the story was at the time, um, was that she was, uh, trying to warm up over the stove. So she had the burners on in the, the stove was on with all the, all the burners trying to heat the, heat the um, house. Um, and so she was on a chair over the top of the burners with her, with her pajamas kind of waving it over the flames of the, of the stove, just trying to get warm. The, the silly things you do when you're a kid, you know, you feel the hot air go up your shirt, you close it, um, kind of waving it over the top of the stove and her uh, pajamas caught fire. And then she, when her pajamas caught fire, they caught the, the, uh, the drapes on fire. And then they were more concerned about the house burning down than the little girl burning in, um, in the middle of the house. And so they just told her to get outside. And then she proceeded to burn on the front porch with nobody giving her water or, or trying to put her out or telling her to stop, drop and roll or nothing like that. She just stood there and burned herself out in the front yard. And, uh, and so um, unfortunately, you know, the situation, fortunately enough, she was, she had been through that for nine years of her life and she was pretty numb to it. And so we were trying to talk to her on the way to the hospital, explain to her what was going to happen. And, uh, and so anyways, and, and, and we did, you know, the most, you know, thought, thoughtful and compassionate transport we could do with a, with a nine-year-old girl. Um, and that was one of the times that I, you know, I usually try to pride myself on, you know, calming one of the parents down saying, you know, they can't really do anything to her until you're there. Um, and, and so, and, and trying to get the calmest parent to go with us, um, so they can help calm the child. Cause I was hurt when I was a, a young child. Um, you know, I was in a, a bicycle accident when I was, um, nine years old and, uh, I had 70 stitches in my face and I'll never forget. The nurse told me, if you don't stop crying, I'm going to send your mom away. And, uh, and luckily my mom basically almost decked the uh, nurse in the face, but, uh, but needless to say, that's always stuck with me, right? And so I've always been the guy, you know, calm with the parents. Hey, I, I want you to be in there. I want you to be with them, but I need you to be strong for your kid, right? Um, because I, that always plays in my head. Well, in this scenario, we didn't take the parents. Not, there wasn't even a question. Like me and my partner just looked at each other like, nope. And we just left because it was nothing good was coming out of them. Um, so anyways, so we thought we did a good job. Um, you know, that we asked the doctors, we did the follow up, like you talk about doing, you know, we did the follow up, Hey, how they doing? And, uh, 
and they're like, oh yeah, she's going to make it. And we're like, wow, that's awesome. You know? And, and so sure enough, you know, I get the subpoena, you know, six months later and the family's suing. Cause she said, you know, they're suing for millions and millions of dollars. Cause they, uh, you know, the, the stove blew up, the pressure, the gas pressure was too high. The, the, uh, jammies weren't, uh, the pajamas weren't uh, flame retardant like they were supposed to be all this hoopla. Right. So, and that, that's neither here nor there, but the big thing was, is when we walked into the, the, um, uh, the courtroom, I asked the mom because I saw her and it had been about a year and a half. And I said, Hey, you know, how's, how's she doing? And she wouldn't even, she wouldn't even tell me. She was just like, she's going through a lot of pain and suffering. And I was like, all right. And it was just like one of those things where it's just like that, that little knife edge where you, you know, you're trying to do the right thing. Um, and you, and you're, you're looking for, I don't want to say kudos or, you know, cause I, I don't do the job, you know, to impress anybody else or, you know, for, for the, the hero badge of the fireman sticker on the back of the truck. Um, it's, you know, it was just like, you're looking for some sort of, you know, purpose. Right. And, and, and that's, and I get into that with my mental health stuff, but it's like, you're looking for purpose. So it's like, Hey, you know, yeah, she's, she's doing great. Like, okay. I can mentally check that off of like, that was a, you know, a good call. It had a good outcome. Um, but it was just something that, that she took from me, you know, in that, in that sense. Um, and so not to end on a bad one, um, me and that same partner had a full arrest, um, a cardiac arrest, uh, where it happened right in front of us. Um, and, and so, and I was, I was young, I'd probably been a paramedic, like maybe three months at this time. And so we get there, we do a full evaluation on this lady. She's 67 years old and uh do the full evaluation as our protocol state you know we have to do a full eval before we can kick the engine loose because we usually get the engine company with four guys on it with us two on the paramedic ambulance and so once we do a full assessment deem that it's you know not a high level call we can kick the engine loose no big deal and so on this specific call we did we did a full evaluation you know the the grandma didn't want to go their grandchildren wanted her to go because she wasn't you know she was a little weaker than normal and wasn't acting herself. And she says, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And so we did the whole evaluation. Everything was fine. And, uh, and so, you know, her, she was more concerned with going to the bathroom. Right. And so we kick the engine loose. We take her, go to the bathroom, get her, you know, finally convince her to go. We'll take you to your favorite hospital, like the whole bit. Right. And, uh, and so good, like probably five, five, yeah, yeah, five to seven minutes go by. We get her all loaded up in the back of the ambulance. Everybody's happy. And all of a sudden, I'm standing with my back to the back doors of the ambulance. And all of a sudden, I see the face on the, the sun change. And I, as I'm talking to him, explaining to him how to get to the hospital, and I turn around and I see my partner drop the back of the, the head of the gurney and start fumbling in the, the BVM compartment. I'm like, okay, sir, hold on one second. And, uh, and so I jump in the back and, uh, and, we do our thing. Um, and so we ended up, you know, we ended up shocking her 12 times. Um, and, uh, and she, we ended up shocking her 12 times through the course of it. Um, after the first shock, she wakes up, sits back up. What the hell happened? And started explaining it to her. She goes back out. Um, and then we ended up shocking her 12 times on the course of the way to the hospital, had to reattach the engine company to drive us the whole bit. Right. Well, the good news of that whole story is, 
she came and made us lunch about six months later. Um, and, and so you talk about the, the true saves, um, cause I've had a lot of saves where you bring them back. Um, but you know, they, you know, they're going to be an invalid because of the lack of oxygen, um, for the rest of their lives. Um, but true saves are where they actually walk out of the hospital after you, after you, they've had a full arrest. Um, and so that was one of, one of my, um, full saves where she actually came and made, made you lunch. Um, and, and so through the course of all of that, um, and not to sound too paramedic because my two of my stories were medics and the only one was a fire, but at the same time, um, it's, uh, cause the fires all kind of blend together. Um, and simply for the fact as, and you kind of talked about it in your book is, you know, the fires are a job well done on a fire is a quick, you know, after action report, clean up the gear and on to the next thing, you know? And, and, and so it's the people that really affect you more, um, and their faces, um, and, and the, the situations and stuff like that. And so I think those are the ones that are more memorable or the ones more memorable to me that, that really stick out, um, through the course of that long career and, and many sleepless nights. Well, you mentioned your partner, Jose Perez. Um, I know that that was a pivotal thing, losing him during COVID. But when I you know, looked into to who he was, seemed like he was an incredible man, did so many altruistic things prior to, to the COVID um, you know, pandemic. Then we'll get to that. Talk to me about who he was and, and what he did for other people, even outside of the uniform. No, oh, man, I'm glad you kicked off the video. I can hide my tears here. Uh, but uh, no, uh, yeah, Hoser. Uh, so he uh, was a classmate of mine. Um, so we came on together. Uh, he was actually in the same rotation as me. So we went to the same uh, fire stations uh, during our probation. Um, he was just on the other shift. Um, but um, early on, um, even in the in the drill tower, um, you could tell that that guy had just wore his heart on his sleeve. It was was the guy always looking around um, to help somebody out, um, and and always you know, would literally give his shirt off of his back, um, to anybody who needed it. Um, and so going through probation with him, um, he started to struggle. Um, he didn't come from much, um, at all. I mean, he used to collect cans for his mom, um, growing up in, in East LA or East of LA. Um, you know, it didn't come from anything. Um, and you know, the fire service was his dream job. And so he didn't really know a lot. He didn't know about roof construction or building construction. He had no background in any, you know, really mechanical skills. Um, and so I would stay over. Um, I would stay over on, on my off shift to, to help him out. Um, and, and it was, we just kind of formed a bond um, where we were always, you know, kind of laughing and scratching and, and, and uh, he's just, you know, the guy everyone loved. Um, and so Having always been assigned to the same fire station as him, um, he he was a paramedic coming on. And so when we got to 33s, um, after probation was over, he went to the, the ambulance um, on my shift. Um, and and so we got to keep working together. And, uh, and he was always the guy who was a step ahead on every medical call. Um, and, and so it was always, he was always the gold standard. Um, we would go on a call and, he would say, "Hey, you want to know how good a, a uh, an EMS call goes?" He goes, "When you get to the hospital, he goes, walk down the the row of ambulances and look inside the back." He goes, 
you can tell by how clean the back is when they unload the patient and how well that incident went. And so he was the one that taught me that just because it's a full arrest or just because it's a shooting doesn't mean that you have to, you know, tear the package of the of the uh, abdominal pad open and throw it on the ground or, or touch everything with your bloody hands because you've been there a thousand times and you should act like it. And, and so his rigs were always pristine. Like we would have the craziest call. I mean, I'm multiple times that we had ones where they were load and goes where it was just me and him on an incident where we had, you know, it was gang territory. We picked up a multiple gunshot wound victim. We just threw him in the back and he's like, just go, I got it. And we'd show up to the hospital and he'd wipe down the shears, the guys that got bilateral IVs hanging, you know, all the meds given, the whole bit. And it's like we just showed up to work that day. there's not a drop of blood on the ground. Um, and that was his thing that he taught me. And I mean, he taught me a thousand things, um, but that was the way he was, was he was that that much of a perfectionist in the fact that and how calm he was all the time. Um, and, and so, uh, fast forward a little bit of, of kind of seeing him as an EMT, just be that way. And then when I became a paramedic, I got the opportunity to be his partner. He was my first partner. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, it was, uh, probably one of the most, I want to say the steepest learning curves I've had my entire life. And the reason why was because being the perfectionist that I am with, with all that stuff and thinking that I, I know sometimes more than I do, um, or at least acting like it with him, there was no, there was no hiding it. Um, and so he would, and the way that he would present it wasn't the, in a demeaning way. It was always in a loving way. And what I mean by that is as the district changed and it became more Hispanic, he spoke fluent Spanish. And, and so he, one day he said, he goes, Hey, he goes, you know, I do most of the talking on the runs and, and you don't know what I'm saying or anything. You just kind of do the, you know, you do all the, the assessment machine wise, but you don't really know what's going on. He goes, how much better could you serve the people if you could talk to them? And I'm like, well, I, you know, I took a couple of years of Spanish in high school. I, you know, I don't really know. And he goes, how about this? How about we do one phrase every week, just going down our, patient care report, just one phrase a week and, and we'll get you there. Well, needless to say, over the course of about a year, I became fluent in Spanish because of him. And, and the way that he had presented it to me of not just like, Oh man, you know, you should learn Spanish. Ha ha ha. You know, in passing, it was the fact that he put it on you that you could be better if you did this. Um, and, and so, and that was kind of how he approached a lot of the things that he did. And it was always about doing the best for people that have less than you. Um, you know, one of the famous stories is a, a, a guy's trip down to Mexico where he would always, I mean, he was, we always call him the mayor, um, because no matter where he went, he knew everyone, or at least everyone wanted to know him. And so we would go down to these small towns in Mexico. Um, these are back, you know, the days of doing, um, you know, Baja runs with uh, motorcycles and stuff like that. And so we'd be in these small towns in Mexico in Baja and we'd show up and, and uh, you know, be the kids selling chiclets. And he noticed that they didn't have shoes, but he wouldn't say anything. Like we would just in passing, you know, Hey, let's go to the next taco stand, whatever. And all of a sudden he's like, Hey, I'll be right back. 
like, oh, okay, man. Yeah, whatever. And so all of a sudden he shows back up about 30 minutes later and he's got a bunch of bags with him. We're like, oh, man, would you, you know, pick up some swag while you're down here? You know, don't you, you know, standard fireman talk, like, you know, don't you have all the ponchos already? Like, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and he's like, and then he's like, you know, totally make you feel like a dick. And he's like, no, these are shoes. And you're like, shoes for what? And he's like, oh, for those kids that were selling chiclets or running back over to him. And you're like, what? what? Right? As you're having your you know, fourth beer and your fifth round of tacos. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I think we're done here, you know. And 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 so then you, you go over there and he, he starts handing out these shoes. And he goes in, he talks to the, the families and 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 you the way that he approached things um was always like that it was always he didn't ask you to help but he did it in a way that you realized how insignificant whatever you were doing is and, and so whether it was and he did this with all you know and, and guys you know laughingly joked like dude at this rate we're never going to make it back to the u.s and because we were we were buying everybody everything we were buying shoes and blankets and you, you name it and and we're just on this this missionary trip that was not that at all 15 minutes prior. And, and so, and that was the way he was on incidents too. You know, you, you see the old lady and her husband's sick and then he would come back later on and you're like, where are we going? Hoser? He's like, ah, oh, we're going on a, going on a little field trip. We'll be back. All right. And so sure enough, we pull back up the house and we mow her yard and we, you know, we take out her trash um, or we cook her dinner or, you know, give the old man a shower. Um, we, I mean, so many times, um, it, you know, there's so many different nicknames he had from so many different people because that's what he would do. And he would always, whatever call he was on, it was the most important thing in the world to him. And that was just work hoser. Now, home hoser, he had a family of his own. And then he had a sister's family. And then he had his parents. Bought them all houses. And he supported all of them. And nobody knew. Nobody knew. And, and he just went about smartly and you're like, he's like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I got to pick up a TV. Like, oh, I, I thought you got a TV last month. Like, oh, no, this isn't for me. It's for my mom. Oh, okay. No big deal. And, and then when overtime would dry up, he would get a job as a truck driver, a uh, dump truck driver to help support his, his mom or his sister's kids. Um, and then he ended up adopting both of his sister's kids. And, uh, and it was just like that. That's how he lived every day. You know, and uh, it was always for other people, never for himself. But you try to, oh, man, you try to get something for him. Nope. And then the way he did it. Oh, this is another good one. Good hoser story. But he uh, is the way he went about his daily life. Like if he really wanted to do something and other people didn't want to do it. And uh, so he would he would go back to a conversation you may have had with him two, three months earlier where you're like, oh, man, I'm looking at these these fishing poles, you know, are just in passing you know, normal firemen, you know, flipping through the internet on whatever today's, you know, distraction is, right? Well, he'd remember back to the three months earlier and all of a sudden he'd show up and he'd be like, oh, dude, this is for you. I bought it for you. And you're like, what is this, dude? It's like, oh, it's that fishing pole you talked about. Like, dude, what? Why did you... Why did you give me this? It's not my birthday or anything. He's like, oh, no, buddy, don't worry about it. I got you. That was his saying. Like He would say that all the time. Hey, buddy, I got you. And then 
pretty soon, 30 minutes later, he'd be like, hey, so about that thing I was talking about that I wanted to do to the rig or to the station. Yeah, man, whatever. Go ahead, dude. <laughs> and that's how he would do it. It was it was the mayor. And uh, and so that was just who he was and, and how he impacted my life um, in, in so many different ways and taught me so many lessons over the years. Um, but the biggest ones were, you know, humility, compassion, uh, understanding, um, and, and just really, you know, taking the job and what we do to a whole different level as far as, you know, not just serving the people, um, but actually having compassion, um, and, and really making their lives better, um, rather than just, you know, checking the box of the run and, and moving on to the next one. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing his story. And I have to put my hand on my heart and say I wasn't at that level as a medic. I remember many times where we came out of the ER after dropping someone off and it looked like a yard sale in the back. So I think I would have had a lot to learn from him myself. Oh, yeah. No, it, and it, it did, man. It, it really held you to a higher standard of, of understanding because then you you get to that or, you you know, you, he sets that benchmark and then you're like, Oh, okay. There is, there is a higher level, you know? And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was insane. And, and, and really this whole, this whole mental health thing, um, and, and doing what I, I do now, um, you know, in, in my belief, I, I truly believe it's, you know, with his help, um, along the whole kind of journey now, especially the, the outreach stuff that I've been doing um, with people and, and really diving into um, just helping each other out. Um, it really comes from, from him and his, I got you buddy mentality. Well, let's kind of walk through COVID then. So obviously you're in LA, a very, very densely populated city. Um, I would argue, I would assume just like the urban areas I worked at, the, the hospitals are probably already, struggling at that point and then we have this virus start to sweep over the world and obviously our country so walk me through kind of early 2020 through your eyes and then obviously we can we can get into losing jose as well yeah no um so yeah so early you know early 2020 you know nobody knows nothing um and then and the kind of one more you know Lego on the castle was the fact that I, you know, I, I fly to and from, um, cause living in, in North Idaho, um, you know, I, I rely heavily on air travel. Um, and, and I also do blocks of work. I go to work for eight days and I come home for 10 days. Um, and so with COVID right off the bat, because nobody knew anything, it was, at first it was like, well, I'm just going to be here in indefinitely. Like, I'm just going to stay here because, you know, I don't know when I can come home. I don't know about quarantining. I don't know, you know, if, if they're going to allow me to fly or the, you know, I have no idea, you know, it's just kind of those things. And it reminded, you know, my wife and I both like of the early um, or the brush seasons every year that, that we get where it's like, you know, Hey, the city's burning down again. Like uh, I'll see you when I see you, kind of deal. Um, and so that's kind of where we were on early on in 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 the uh, the whole pandemic when it was just started out. Um, and then as 
and then just from a first responder point, I mean, you have all this craziness going on in the news and, and then, you know, our department comes out with, you know, the best of the day, which is, you know, uh, some masks they found in the back room and some trash bags that we should put on before we go into the most deadly virus ever. You know what I mean? And, and it was like, uh, I guess, uh, you know, this is what we should do. And, and so, we, and we did it anyways. And that was the thing was like, I had worked through Ebola when Ebola was, was prevalent. And there was people that refused to go on those calls, right? There, I, there was some documented things where people, and it never actually was obviously, but it, uh, there was documented cases where people were like, you know, a homeless person has Ebola, puke and vomit everywhere, or blood everywhere. I'm, yeah, I'm not going. You can show us NAV. I'm going home. But COVID wasn't like that. Everybody just kept going, you know, and, and we kept putting on the trash bags and kept going out and uh, and dealing with all that. And it was uh, it was just like that part was strange in a sense. Um, but also the way that it impacted L.A. was, too, because the first people that, it, that we saw having it was the rich people, believe it or not. Um, I was working a day in Brentwood as an overtime day, and and that was the first time I'd even heard of it um, in Los Angeles was one of the, the business members, uh, the rich businessman in, in Brentwood uh, area uh, was like, hey, man, you know, I just got off the phone with my private doctor. Uh, you know, he says, I got this thing. Like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you to do. I go, just go with whatever he says. I go, we have no idea. Um, and then and also backing up just a bit. One thing that the department changed pretty quickly was our our transportation policy because we have a transportation policy that we take everyone who wants to go regardless of complaint. Right. Um, and so pretty quickly, like you're talking about with the, the hospitals, the hospitals were overwhelmed. I mean, it looked like, you know, Port of Prince Haiti um, post earthquake um, at the hospitals. They had the, the military tents. They were running out of oxygen. I mean, it was absolute chaos. Um, pretty quickly. And so they changed our dispatch policy, or I mean, our transportation policy to where we didn't have to take anybody um, unless they met a smaller criteria that was very small. Um, and and it was like crazy to us, but it was like, all right, yeah, we can just tell people, you know, we don't have to have them sign anything. It was nothing. It was like, hey man, your vitals are good. See you later. Good luck. Um, and that's what we were doing early on. And uh, and it And it was just weird. And so as it started to spread and become more prevalent of what we were going on pretty much all calls we started seeing that kind of i think i have covid to the real covid patients what we called it like real covid um and those are the ones when the medic side of my mind started to go a little haywire um because we were going on these calls and none of it made any sense no Western medicine sense. You would go on a call of a person who normally anything less than, I would say, 90% to 88% oxygen saturation, they're breathing pretty hard. Um, you know, one to one to two word sentences, you know, they got, you know, either some cardiac stuff going on with CHF with fluid buildup, or they got asthma or COPD, some sort of combination of those things, but they're working. But all of a sudden, we started going on these people with 60% less than 50% and they're sitting in their favorite sofa chair having a conversation with you. And it was like, wait a minute, this thing must be jacked up. This, 
the oxygen pulse ox machine has got to be broken, you know, and you're listening to their lungs and they're clear and you're like, oh, okay, well here, let me put you on some oxygen. And it's like, nope, that doesn't work. All right, well, let me put you on more oxygen. No, that doesn't work. Well, let me put you on CPAP because that'll cure anything. I mean, you're shoving it down there. Nope, doesn't change anything. You're like, huh, all right, well, let's go to the hospital. I don't know what's going on. And then they get to the hospital and they give them an O2 tank and they send them back home, tell them to come back when it runs out. And you're like, what is happening here? You know, and it's like, and they're giving you a, oh, and then that was another thing that wasn't making sense, you know, because naturally as firemen and then more as paramedics too, is we're problem solvers, right? We, we take our natural flow charts that we've been trained on in our brain and we start to put it in boxes, right? Like chest pain, boom, go to chest pain protocol, yada, 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 yada. Oh, it, nope. You got chest pain and difficulty breathing. Okay. Which one is it? What flow chart do I go down? All that stuff. Right. And, and just by deduction, we get to a certain protocol. Well, on this, none of it made any sense. And so as a person who cares, generally cares about the job that they do and the, the problem solving aspect, you're like, so let me get this straight. It's supposed to be a virus. They go to the hospital and they give them antibiotics. That's for bacterial infections, not for viruses. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, but then we see these people on Z-Packs and they're not getting any better. They just get worse. And then it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense either. And so there was this whole time period, basically from really like the end of February to like the beginning of June, where it was just like, what is going on? Like, none of this makes any sense. Not to mention the sudden, the sudden a heart attack that we were seeing where, you know, one of the first ones I went on of the thousands that it turned out to be was a 19 year old, 19 year old kid, a security guard, uh, probably six, five, 350 pounds. Uh, and he was like, he's like, yeah, man, I got off work and my chest is just feeling like tight. And he's like, I, you know, I, it feels like I got hit. He's like, I played football in high school. It feels like I got hit in the chest, you know, speared or something. All right, cool, man. We check him out. Everything's looking good. His oxygen saturation is a little low. It's like in the 70s, but we're like, hey, everybody's got COVID right now. No big deal. You know, what do you want to do? And while we're talking to him, he sits there and literally right in front of us goes from talking to us just like that to lays back on the couch. I look over and he's in asystole, which is flatline for the people not – you know, cardiac, cardiac, uh, educated, but yeah. So it's all of a sudden I'm like, what in the world? And I look at the patches. I'm like, sir, sir. And so get an IV, give him epi. And normally like pretty much even a 98 year old heart, you're going to get some type of reaction when you give them the epinephrine BIV, right? Whether, whether you get back any type of muscle contraction, you're going to get something, right? Some type of electrical activity. And it's nothing. And it just stays that way. And all of us on scene, there was four medics on scene and we're working this guy up. And the way that the COVID policies were written was we worked him up. We gave him, I don't think, were we at the epi shortage yet? Not, not at that point. So yeah, so we gave him our three epis and we worked them 20 minutes and, and we're like, no change at all. And we're like, how do I call this 19 year old kid? Like there's, there's nothing here. And so 
that went on of just not making any sense. All of the Western medicine we've been taught, all the things that I've been at that time training for, you know, 10 to 15 years as a paramedic, none of it worked. Didn't like just cold Turkey, like not that it trailed off or became less effective. It just didn't work. And so, so that was just kind of a strange thing. And then granted, um, with that, um, June, um, was when it hit downtown the hardest. Um, it started hitting all of the, uh, convalescent hospitals downtown. Um, and so at this point I had, you know, we're policies were all over the place with the department on where, where you could work, when you can work, um, you know, what you could do, how you were supposed to check in or quarantine or whatever. And so I just told, told my wife, I said, Hey, I'm just going to work until this is over. Uh, cause it, it doesn't make any sense for me to come home and expose you guys. You know, they were living their best life up here, no masks, no nothing, you know? And I was like, I'm not going to bring this home or a potential or whatever. And so I just kept working. I worked, I ended up working for 30, 30 days straight. Um, and during those 30 days, I, uh, you know, I can't even tell you how many, it, it was on average of six to eight, um, eight fourteens is the reference for determination of death. Um, there's probably eight, I'd say six to eight a day, um, of these that we would do. And, and it was, uh, and a lot of them, they, they would just die right in front of you and that would be it. And you were just like, okay, well that we don't, we don't work on these people anymore. And so they're dead, I guess. And so just medically, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and so that was kind of frustrating um, but we were just kind of going through the motions at that point. Um, and, it, and it was very frustrating because we were short on oxygen. We were short on epinephrine. We were short on, and it was like, oh, well, we don't do uh, adult BVMs because we're short on them. So use the, use the kid ones. Yeah, they're, they're fine. They're, they're that's normal, you know, or don't do compressions anymore if they're day Just don't touch them, you know, and it was just a lot of it didn't make any sense. And so that really started to break down that purpose of life, really. And I, and I, I, say it as a foundation um, or a pillar um, that, that really makes you who you are is there's a pillar of home and a pillar at work. And, and that, and then it really started to start to crumble that pillar of purpose at work when all of the things that you were supposed to be doing to help people aren't working anymore. Um, and so then that leads to July. Um, so July um, I fly in uh, from, I'd gone home for two weeks. Um, and then I came back in and I get a phone call from one of my other buddies. Um, and they go, Hey, do you hear, you know, hosers in the hospital? I was like, hosers in the hospital for what? And they're like, Oh, I, you know, I guess he's got, uh, I guess he's got COVID. Um, and I'm like, what am I, what are you talking about? And, uh, so I started gathering some information and basically hoser being hoser, I guess he'd gotten, um, gotten sick or whatever. And so he knew he was feeling kind of under the weather cause he was doing kind of the same thing as that, you know, everybody else just kind of working days on end. And, uh, and so he had sent his family away to Palm Springs and he was sitting in a house by himself and, uh, and just trying to get through it. And, uh, and so he, you know, basically said like, Hey, you know what? I'm wheezing a little bit. I'm going to go to this little dinky community hospital and get a breathing treatment real quick. And that'll make me feel better. And then I can sleep a little bit. And, uh, and so he walks into this community hospital and said, Hey, look, I'm a paramedic. I just need a breathing treatment. Uh, 
and I'll, you know, maybe a shot of steroids and I'll be on my way. I'm just wheezing a little bit. And so he came back, tested positive for COVID. You know, they ended up putting him behind a couple of plastic sheets and forgetting about him. And, uh, and so we were trying to get more information and, you know, he's, we're trying to text him and guys are going over there trying to get into the thing. You can't go in there. It's COVID. Um, you know, because as you well know, working through COVID, the, the patient advocacy during COVID was a joke. It was absolutely, it was a sham, you know, because your family can't be there. There's nobody. It's like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you can't go back there. Oh, they're dead. Sorry. And you're like, what just happened right now? And so we were trying to get more information. Um, and so finally we got a phone into him. Um, we got a phone into him and then we were able to, to, to talk to him. And as the course of it went on, it was like, Hey, you know, there's, they're telling me I should get this shot. What do you think? I, I should get this medicine they're, they're talking about. And it's like, he goes, I don't really know. It's kind of, they say it's, you know, it's, it's not really tested, but it could help me. And we're like, why, what, what is going on? You know, and, and we're just getting kind of mixed signals and nobody really knew the names of anything. Cause it was remdesivir. Um, and it was like, you know, trying to Google it yourself and nobody had any info. And so it was just kind of all over the place. And then all of a sudden he goes, Hey, I think, uh, because the whole week they wanted to innovate him the whole week. They're, they're like, Hey, we got to innovate you. We're going to put you out, innovate you. And he's like, I'm sitting here talking to you. You're not putting, you're not innovating me. And, and so finally day four, he goes, Hey, I've been on the CPAP for 24 hours. I think I'm going to let them innovate me. They say it could be beneficial. And we're like, don't do it, man. Don't do it. And, and, uh, and so the last, uh, the last conversation he had with one of my other buddies, um, is he called him and he said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And he's like, just take care of my family. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> And, uh, and that was it. Um, the last we knew was that they, um, they went to innovate him and, uh, and he, and he coded is what they said. Um, but being in the hospitals during that time, I knew exactly what had happened, um, because I'd seen it firsthand, um, where we would bring out, bring in a patient that we had saved or that we had innovated. And what happens is, is they, they go in and they go, okay, yeah, let's get ready for intubation. And then they go out, they put their scuba suits on. They had all their fancy equipment for COVID and the patient sits there for 10 minutes with no oxygen. And then they come in and they pronounce them. And we saw it time and time again. And I know that's what happened to them. And so that moment in time, what really kicked in um, was obviously not emotion. It was frustration and anger. And the problem solving aspect, right? Um, because I, obviously at the time it was, you know, I was, I was in the mental mode of, of just, you know, problem solve, bury it, move on. And so that's what I did. I, I you know, immediately went to his family um, and started, you know, trying to organize um, everything we could for him and his family. You know, he had three young kids and a wife. And, uh, and so it was just an absolute shit show. The entire thing was a shit show um, from trying to get his funeral, to try and 
to get down there um, where we basically had administration telling us like, no, we can't, we can't let you go. And then we end up just saying, forget it. We're all banging and sick right now. Um, because the wife had called me back and they said that they had ran out of room in their COVID, um, uh, in their COVID department. Um, and so we needed to come get his body. And, uh, and so, and this is about three hours after we had heard that he had died. And I was working at the time as well as a couple other guys were on shift. And so we basically were like, we're done with all this. Um, and so luckily we had some higher ups that, that knew of us. And we said, Hey, we're, we're going to take the fire engine and we're going to go. Um, and they're like, well, so nobody calls the cops on you. Like, let me at least put you down. Um, and so they did. And, and so we went there and the problem was, is the family had just been diagnosed with COVID as well. And so nobody wanted to, to be around them. And, and, and all of us that were close to him said, we don't care. We don't care. Um, and so we were able to, to be with them there, um, and get him to a mortuary. And that was another thing was none of the mortuaries were taking anybody because they were full. And so just trying to find a place to take him. And, and, and so just everything just kind of was just one more problem to hide the emotion is what I'm getting at. Right. It was the, it went right into the problem solving mode and it was like, okay, we, let's split all this stuff up. we got a ton of stuff to handle. Each of us take apart. And, and we just did it that way and, and did it the best we could. And, uh, and so, you know, moving forward after that, um, there was a ton of guilt, um, and not, you know, and obviously at the time I wasn't dealing with it. I just buried it. Um, but it was guilt of, you know, was there something more I could have done? Was there something, you know, something that we could have, you know, told them to do or, or take or drive them to Arizona to get treatment or one of the five hospitals in California that were actually doing experimental care where it wasn't just shove oxygen in the face until they stopped breathing. Um, you know, all this guilt of just, you know, knowing the emergency medicine side of it and being unable to help your friend and none of it making any sense. And then as the time went on and more and more things came out, um, it was just more and more just pain, frustration, and just piled on top of not understanding more calls, more dead bodies. And which really led me to kind of my breaking point that I talked about a little bit in the Grab Lies podcast um, was the night um, that we walked in on a patient. And, and this was kind of, I don't want to say my breaking, it was when, it finally affected me, I should say, um, where I finally let it show, I guess. Um, but yeah, we walked in on a patient, um, and she was, uh, mid mid thirties and we walked in and the first thing she says is, I know you. And so that obviously caught me off guard cause I, you know, don't, don't live where I work. Um, and so I, I go, excuse me. And she goes, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the, one of the, the registration at one of the hospitals. I'm like, oh Yeah. And, and so I look at the monitor as I'm kind of chat, chatting with her and I, I see that she's, you know, down in the sixties in her pulse ox and she's on a little nasal cannula and I, I see all the classic signs. She's got the fever, she's got everything. And, uh, and so, you know, the routine that we'd been doing, you know, a hundred times before that day was okay, you know, let's load you up. And then when we go to 
we transfer to the gurney, they die, and we lay them on the ground, and we pronounce them in the, in the house. That was what we were doing over and over and over again. And so finally on this call, I said, no, no more. And, and I go, the, you know, the guys kind of were getting ready to do that. The captain was in there from the engine company, and I, I said, no. I go, hold on a second. And, uh, and it wasn't because I knew her. It wasn't the fact. It was just, it was I'd had enough. I'd had enough. And, and so I go, I go, no, I go, we're going to do this one a little different. And so I basically walked out and I told her family cause they were all there. Um, cause she'd already been to the hospital twice. And like I mentioned before, what they were doing at that point was they were literally people would go to the hospital. And if you weren't in the protocol box of innovation or ventilators, then you would be given a small oxygen tank and told to go home until the oxygen tank ran out and then come back. Right. And, and so that's, she'd already done that twice. Right. And, and so the optimism on this call was, was not good. And so I went out there and I told their family, I said, listen, I go, I don't want to give you false hope. I go, cause you guys have been going through this. I go, so what I would like to do is, I would like you to guys to go in there and say your goodbyes to her while she's talking. She's able to talk um, and give you the opportunity that I didn't have. And, uh, and then we're going to take her to the hospital. And, and so we, and, and I'll never forget the look on the captain's face. He was like, you're going to do what? And uh, I go, Cap, I got this. I got this. And, uh, and so his, the family, family rotated through and said their goodbyes, you know, and, and as, as I, you know, we took her off the thing and got her in the back of the ambulance and, and she maintained to the hospital. Um, and I, I don't know if she made it or not. Um, but that was kind of my defining moment of COVID where I was done with it. Um, and, and from then on, there was that compassion where I just stopped treating people like numbers and started treating them like human beings and how I would, you know, how I would want it to have gone with Hoser. And, and that's what I started doing. And, and so then that really started wearing on me because at that point I was really going against the grain um, just with everyone else. And then obviously the venting and stuff at the fire stations were through the roof. And so I just kind of became isolated and I would, I would hold it in and not say much at work. You know, we weren't training back then. There was no, you know, there was no training, you know, that all got canceled. We weren't, you know, working on fire stuff anymore. We weren't drilling with guys. Guys weren't getting certified in positions. It was just kind of like everybody just stared at the wall um, because it was so busy. I mean, we were doing 30 to 35 calls in a 24-hour shift um, on every apparatus. And it was just absolute chaos. And, uh, and so, um, like, one captain famously told the chief, you know, a chief stopped by, you know, because they were all, you know, the, the chiefs that work eight-hour days. And, you know, they stopped by like, oh, how's everybody doing? You know, we got we brought you lunch and and a, a famous TFC, you know, told one of these chiefs, he said, look, and he goes, look at my guys. He goes, look at their faces. He's all they're not on a day at the station. They're at war right now. They're in the trenches. I go, they're in complete shell shock. They don't know what way is up. And because during covid. Um, that's when they started to initiate these things called recalls where they were basically forcing guys to continue to work until the spot could be filled by somebody. 
And so because we have what we have constant staffing is what our department does. And so basically you can't go home until the person relieves you another person. Well, the problem during COVID was so many guys were off with, with COVID um, and were so short staffed normally that there was nobody coming. So you just keep working. And so there were guys that had been there, you know, five, six days, five, five days was the max 120 hours um, where they had never worked more than a 24 hour shift or a 48 hour shift in their career. And now they're working five days straight with no sleep. And, and it was like, and that went on and it continues to go on to this day because they never, you know, once they take something, they never give it back. Right. They never go, Oh, thanks for the great work. We're going to go back to the old way. It was like, well, no, this is working. And so it just continues to go on. It, it happens a little less because we've hired about 400, 500 people since then. But with attrition, that it's going to be right back to the same thing. Um, so that's obviously, you know, the sleep thing is huge and we'll get into that. But it's like, that's what happened, right? And, and you just had that thing. So that's where I was stuck. And I was doing these long stints because of the COVID aspect and take, bringing it home. And I was just like, I'm just going to keep plowing forward. Um, and, and so it, it's it slowly just began to eat me away to where when I would come home, um, I would, I would just stare at the wall and I, and I would use, you know, alcohol and, and it, you know, I talked to guys about, about alcohol and how it, it's not a, you know, we, we always see the extremes of alcohol, you know, you know, we go on the drunks on the sidewalk have been doing it for years and they got ascites and liver problems and all that stuff. And you never think that's going to be you. You know, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you start with the, you know, where your usual routine and, and this is where the coping mechanisms aspect really comes into play, because up until COVID, um, there was a mental health crisis, 100 percent. Right. And, and and the whole stigma that, you know, this is a new age problem and these these new generations are weak and that's what's causing all these mental health problems is 100 percent false. And and. Because I can, I can vouch, and I, I mentioned this a little bit on the, on the Grab Lives podcast, but I can vouch for a lot of heroes of mine and absolute fire gods when I was coming up that are now retired, divorced, broken, kids have, kids have disowned them, and they live in one-room apartments by themselves, all because they didn't address their mental health and they didn't address their families. And, and it's like, and, and, and that's my thing is, is it's, it's not that it's a new problem. It's that we're actually fine, finally realizing what's going on here. And I think what really tapped into that was COVID because nothing made any sense. Um, and so as this went on, you know, you, you know, I'm sorry, get, digress back to alcohol, but, yeah, so normally you have your normal coping mechanism that gets you through every day, right? Like you, you go to work, you know, okay, you know, come back, have some beers, you know, have fun, whatever at home. And then you go back into work and do the daily grind. And then that's how you go and deal with all your stress as you go through life. Well, with COVID, it was, it was an overload with stress at work and then also at home because you had, you know, your, your, your loved one might have been laid off or, started working from home. The kids were stuck at home trying to figure out a computer and all this stuff. And then, and, and just totally throwing home life into a, a total, uh, you know, hurricane 
And, and so then, you know, that whole two pillar system where, if, you know, in before where if home sucked, you'd go to work and hang out with the boys and then that would make home better or vice versa. If work sucked, you go home, hang out with the fam, then you forget about work. Well, all that started to crumble simultaneously because work sucked and home sucked. And it was like the, all the regular coping mechanisms that you had in place of going to the gym um, or, you know, riding, you know, riding your bike or, you know, doing your Peloton or whatever, just lost its luster or you didn't have time to do it anymore or didn't want to do it because you were too tired. Well, the gyms were closed um, and, and you, wanna, you couldn't. Yeah. And gyms were closed and you couldn't. Exactly. And so it, it started you know, the, the one thing going through this process that, that really was my aha moment um, was the fact of the fact that, you know, when I, well, let me continue the story and I'll get to that point of my aha moment. But so I just started to spiral. I started to spiral. Um, and obviously I, I kept up the work uh, costume um, pretty well. I mean, the fact that I, even when I do this now, and tell my story, you know, really close friends of mine at the, at the firehouse would, you know, go, you know, try to apologize to me and say, man, I'm sorry. I, I didn't, I didn't know. And I go, that's, that's not on you, man. I go, I, I'm a good faker. You know, I can act with the best of them. And, and, and that was the thing is I, I could always fall back into that role of, of, of playing fireman, um, you know, and, and it was, it wasn't anybody's fault, but my own. Um, and so it, it really started to weigh on my home life. And, and the, 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 finally the straw that broke the camel's back was when my wife told me that she didn't want me around my daughter anymore. And I had, at the time I had an eight year old daughter, that was my world. And she didn't want me around my daughter anymore because I was scaring her. And, uh, and that was it for me. Um, that was, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And because up, up until that point, um, I was, you know, constantly angry, uh, constantly, you know, tired, didn't want to do anything, but couldn't sleep. Constantly had this white noise in the back of my head that wouldn't go away. Um, just, it, it was like the old televisions just being stuck on channel three and just that white noise just all the time. Um, just never shut off. Um, I didn't sleep. Uh, the little sleep that I did get was, you know, post 12 pack of beer for about 45 minutes. Um, and, and, and so it was, it was just this thing where I was absolutely miserable and didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, and the only coping mechanisms I'd ever been taught by the fire service was to drink and to work out. And that's it. That's, that's where it ends. If you can't solve it with those two things, then something must be seriously wrong with you. And so that's where I was stuck. And, and, and the, the lack of purpose, um, where it was, you know, work doesn't matter. You know, my family doesn't want me around. Um, and this gets into my, my suicide bit a little bit um, as far as what I believe now looking back, the difference with us is. Um, and I talk about this in, in my, my PowerPoint that I give now. Um, but it's, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second. But just in that moment, it was it was the fact that there was, nothing I could do to stop it. And, and finally at that moment, that was when I finally told, finally told my wife, like, this is, this is it. I need, I need help. Um, and, and luckily we had, we'd been going to a marriage counselor, um, 
through our marriage, just not just as a kind of checkup kind of thing. Um, and so we were able to reach out to her um, as an MFT and start down the, the long, arduous process of, of pulling all those skeletons out of the closet, um, which leads me to how I got here today um, talking to you is the fact that after going through that process, and I, and I really credit my family for sticking sticking it out with me because it was not pretty. It wasn't like a magical fix where I went in and took two pills and was great in the morning. Um, it was a long year and a half of, of not good times, um, of, of really struggling through it and, 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 and just trying, trying these new things of understanding what was going on with me. And, and once I came out the other side, the aha moment was that I can't believe nobody else is talking about this. Like, how have I never heard any of these things? And they're so simple. How have I never heard in 20 years on the fire service? I've never heard any of this. And, and I'm pretty, you know, apt to talk about things at the kitchen table and, you know, I know a bunch of different people at different ranks and everything like that. And, it, and I hadn't heard any of it. And it was like, how, how, how have we been going through all this and never heard any of this stuff? And so I did, I did what I knew how to do. And it was to, to do a drill. And so I started writing this PowerPoint and just explaining the basics of what, you know, what the difference between behavioral health and mental health is. What are, what is a coping strategy? What is a coping mechanism? What are good stress and bad stress? What are stress relieving activities that you can do to aid your coping strategies? And then what to do when those start to fail and what that feels like and what makes us different as firefighters that causes that reach out to be different than the average nine to five office worker and how that's, you know, hard to, if you don't go to a clinician, when you do reach out that understands us, then it's a, even more frustrating because then you, you walk into a, a clinician that is used to a nine to five office job and have the, have the best intentions, but you spend the first two weeks and five grand explaining to them what a 24 hour shift is and why you can't go to a different job. Um, and, and so, and that's frustrating a lot of times when guys, you know, kind of check the box and like, well, I ain't reaching out again. Cause if that's it, I don't want a part of that. And, and so, and, and really during that time when I was building this PowerPoint and talking to, to family friends that are, that are doctors in psychology and, and really diving into this thing and trying to really bring it into firefighter speak of all this psychology jargon into just us and what makes us tick. And, and you figure out that those two things that make us tick of hypervigilance and resilience of being turned up to 11 all the time and then all of the, the health problems and just how it's all interconnected with everything from, you know, sleep to mood um, and, and how regulating yourself and being self-aware of that is the first step to really solving the problem of, of both, you know, being, you know, mentally healthy, physically healthy, as well as, you know, my, my thing of, of, of having a healthy family life as well, you know? And, and so during this PowerPoint, as I started to do it just on my own, um, it, I started to get approached with, you know, guys are like, Oh, why are you doing this, man? Are you trying to promote or anything? And it was like, no. And they're like, well, you know, are you trying to, you know, you have a business on the side trying to make money? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just trying to help people. And, and it kind of pissed me off, to be honest, like at the beginning, because I'm like, 
I thought that would be pretty obvious, like why I'm doing this, um, but it wasn't. And so then I kind of thought about it and and really dove into why I was doing it. And and my main thing is, yes, do I do it to prevent suicide? 100%, obviously. Like that's the biggest, hugest thing, right? But at the same point, that's a lot of that is out of my purview. That's professional help stuff, like way over my pay grade. My thing is, is the basic education, and the basic level of both having an understanding of, of how you work um, as, as a um, first responder, law enforcement, and um, first responder, law enforcement, and uh, military professional um, are all the kind of the same way kind of person or psyche kind of go into those fields. Um, but also my biggest thing is to find joy at work and joy at home. And so, and guys kind of like snicker at that. They're like, really dude? And I'm like, no, I'm serious. And, you know, and, and I, I challenge guys with, you know, when's the last time you felt joy at home? And they're like, Oh, you know, the other day I was at home, you know, playing with the kid. I'm like, no, 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 not happiness, joy. And so they kind of stop for a second. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, joy is reciprocal, right? It's not, that you have a smile on your face. It's that your smile brings the smile to the other person's face, right? True joy. And they're like, Oh, um, Oh, probably, you know, my, my kid's birthday, you know, six months ago. Oh, okay, cool. And then I, then I hit them with the hard one. When's the last time you had joy at work? And they're like, Oh, I don't even know. I have no idea. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like really think hard. And, and, and for a lot of guys, it's, it's super hard to, to find that. And, and so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do with all of this is, is just have people be able to not only help themselves, but help their buddies next to them. Cause like I, you know, kind of a coined is, is nobody, nobody knows better what you're going through than the guy sitting next to you, whether that's in the ambulance, whether that's in the truck, the engine, um, because they're, they're going through the same thing. And, and, and the more open that you become, and as I've gone through this over the last two years of, of giving the PowerPoint and, and talking to people and, and put myself out there um, is you find that it's not one person. It's not a couple crazies. Okay. Um, it's, it's everyone. Everyone's going through this at some level, even if it is, you know, having problems talking to their loved ones or trying, trying to come home. And, and one thing that's kind of come up recently that I've really noticed is, you know, not taking anything away from our military members or what they do and what they experience in their life. But millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars are dedicated every year to a transition that they make one time when they come home from war. Right. And then obviously multiple deployments, multiple times. Right. But we do hundreds of those a year and nobody's ever taught us how to do a transition from work to home. Right. Nobody's ever, you know, did a hundred million dollar study on the best ways to come down from a 24 hour shift of not sleeping or a 72 hour shift or five days not sleeping. And and that understanding and awareness of what it can do to your body, what it can do to your mind, and then what ultimately it does to your family and your coworkers, and then you as a person and a and as an employee, um, is truly, you know, detrimental to all of those things, ultimately leading to the elephant in the room, which is suicide. Um, and so just quickly, I want to get on the suicide thing real quick. And, and this is really what I drive home is, is the fact that, you know, we being all encompassing first responders, we go on 
mental health problems all the time, right? And we see the extremes. We see, you know, the person that's on the side of the bridge or on the top of the building or, you know, just in the comfort of their home saying that they want to kill themselves, right? And so we know what that looks like in our mind. But having, having talked to both real world people and now first responders in crisis, okay, there's one jarring difference that I've, I've really found. And, and that jarring difference is, is when we go on the patients and we get them where they're suicidal, their statement is, I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to kill myself. Right. And it's like, okay, you know, that's obviously somebody that's given up. Whereas when I hear a first responder who's in crisis, they say, I don't know why I'm even here. I want to kill myself. And so to most people, that sounds the same. It's like, oh, they're suicidal, you know, done deal, right? Um, but having uttered these words myself, um, I can tell you that there's a stark difference. And that stark difference is, is that second one, that first responder, that military member, that law enforcement personnel, all they're doing is looking for a purpose. And if I can give them a purpose way earlier on, of, of an understanding to find that purpose when it starts to get lost, then I can prevent them from ever getting to that position. Um, and, and that's, that's really it. It, it. It's about that lack of purpose that we need in our lives every day and understanding how important that purpose is and that they're not alone. Um, and that, that there's plenty of, that they're not, you know, broken. They're not, you know, one, one of a kind as far as like they're, you know, nobody understands them, um, that, you know, nobody's going through what they're going through, um, that, that they're, you know, a, a broke batch of goods, um, that they can't help anybody anymore. Um, I'm telling you, that's all, that's all in your mind. It's, it's not true at all. And, and, and that's the one thing that that's really, driven me to do this and, and, and really focus on, you know, what, what Hoser, you would tell me with, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's that I, I've got you buddy mentality. Well, firstly, I want to thank you for walking us through who Jose was. Um, I just did an interview with uh, Chief uh, Joe DiBernardo, and he lost his son, um, Joey, in the 178th fire in New York, which is known as the Black Sunday fire, uh, even though the people involved hate that name. Um, but, you know, when we've lost someone, we get to hear about who they were rather than just, a, you know, a name up on the, the memorial wall, as it were. You also touched on the sense of purpose. Um, I'm going to kind of not load this question yet. When, when I started this podcast, the conversation was very much, you know, suicide is cowardly. How could they do that? It's so selfish, et cetera, et cetera. And then you listen to people who have been there, hundreds of people who have been there. And then you realize there's two kind of resounding common denominators one is clearly and wanting and a suffering to end you know they're in turmoil and they want it to stop but the other thing that i don't think most people hear and certainly not any of the kind of uh, suicide awareness posters is there's this true belief that they are a burden to the world that they are a burden to their family um a prime example which is tragic is we had two police officers in florida here last year um i think it was last year or early this year uh both take their lives within 
about a week of each other. They were they were partners, um, and they had a little newborn baby. So from the outside looking in with a healthy mind, they're like, "Well, how could they do that? Well, you know, that's so selfish, it's so cowardly, etc." When you understand how miswired the brain gets through all the compounding elements that we've discussed about already, childhood trauma and you know organizational stress and betrayal and you know the things that we see and do in our job, the sleep deprivation, and you have this compounding element, your brain is as broken as it is when you herniate a disc or you you know you break a wrist falling on on concrete. And I don't think you'd be like, oh, well, James, why can't you pick up that can of Coke? Well, my fucking wrist is broken. I can't grip. Well, why can you not see that your family love you? Well, because my brain is broken. So that's that's the kind of aha moment I've had through seven years of these kind of conversations. Talk to me about through your eyes, if that was a, a you know an element and also all the, the men and women you've interacted with since you've become holding the torch when it comes to mental health. Uh, yeah, so this is kind of a, a big, uh, you know, I think in the, in the PowerPoint I do, it's, uh, you know, I call it the elephant in the room, right? They talk about, um, you know, the, the line of duty deaths, um, being surpassed by suicide in the last few years. Um, and it, it's just a, cra- a crazy thing to even think about, right? And, and you talk about, you know, the, you know, before I went through this, the, the thought of suicide was just so foreign to me, right? Because you, you think of all of those, you know, misnomers of, you know, oh man, I can't, can't believe they did that to their family and stuff like that. And, and well, it's really interesting now being, having gone through it, um, being to the edge and back. Um, it's, it's this thing called flooding and it's, um, you know, it took me, you know, still ongoing, but it, it, it took me a long time um, with my therapist to get to the point where I could describe it. And the, the best way I can describe it now, looking back, is this this static noise, you know, from the the 1980s, you know, uh, white noise on your TV when you're on channel three. Um, and it's just a, an overbearing, um, just noise that doesn't shut off. And, and the frustration of having any noise turned on that you can't turn off, um, it just, you know, for lack of a better term, makes you go crazy. I mean, it, it literally just blocks out every other emotion that you can have. And so what's been interesting to me um, is now putting myself out there as a peer support member for my department um, and then just giving out my number in general um, for you know anybody looking to to call is I've had interactions with people in crisis and and what's very interesting to me as as the first responder aspect of it is we we go on people in crisis all the time you know nine one one call for for a um, behavioral health or you know they they come in as a suicidal ideation what have you and so what kind of has just been an observation for me is going on these calls for, for many years, you know, you'd always get there and it'd be, you know, somebody, um, going through crisis and, and their main kind of motto that they would keep repeating was, I don't want to be here. I just want to die. And, and so you, you, you know, obviously try to, um, you know, comfort them and, and get them the help that they need. But what was interesting to me, the difference was, was 
was that one to me sounds like, you know, somebody giving up, right? Completely, you know, just doesn't want to be there. Well, when I started, started hearing from other people, um, when they were in crisis or close to it, um, and then having to replay the thoughts that I had in my mind, um, it's something very different. And that, that kind of reoccurring theme is, is the fact that you go to a place where your purpose starts to be questioned and, and what the, the reoccurring saying that, that you hear over and over and over again is, I don't even know why I'm here. Why am I even here? And, and that to me is completely different than the first one. And, and what I mean by that is the fact that us as first responders and the, the people and types of mentalities that are called to, you know, the, the big three, which is law enforcement, military, and fire department, right? So those three are the selfless occupations, right? Where you are a, a person that finds joy in helping other people and putting yourself last, right? And, and so with that, when you get into crisis, it's when those pillars have fallen down, right? Those pillars that hold your, your life up, which is work and family have crumbled down and have left you feeling like you have no purpose, right? Where, where you, you're saying, you know, you're, you're, you're not doing a good job at work, um, or things at work have been called into question, um, whether it's, um, you know, the call load or your performance or just the fact that, you know, you kind of given up at work because you're like, it doesn't matter anyways. And, and it just starts this, this whirlwind of, you know, of things not making any sense. Right. And so you, you come home and then you're angry or frustrated or tired and, and you're not processing these, these events that are happening at work. And so you start taking it out on your family and you start tearing that apart. And then basically everything kind of implodes on itself and, and, and leads you to this part of, of not understanding your purpose anymore. And, and that's one of the biggest things that, that I really kind of start, you know, cause obviously I'm, I'm not a, a mental health professional, right? Um, you know, like I, I always joke around and, and say that I, I take the state farm approach, right? I, I, I know a few things because I've seen a few things and, and that's, where I kind of come in is not from a, a clinician standpoint of, you know, trying to, um, you know, stop people from, from committing suicide. Absolutely. That's 100%, you know, a, a goal. Absolutely. But, but kind of my niche is, is getting people to start understanding these things that we've never been taught before. Um, because that was the kind of aha moment when, when I came out the other side of, of, working with a clinician and, and hours and hours of, of therapy is I was, it became so simple. And I was like, why, why hasn't anybody ever told me about any of these things, whether it be coping mechanisms, whether it be stress relieving activities, whether it be, um, you know, different ways of, of becoming self-aware and, and really kind of self-managing yourself and, and where you're at. And so that's what led me into the PowerPoint and, and really just the introduction to, you know, 
you know, one, making it okay, but also giving us the tools to have the purpose to treat ourselves and, and, and take time for ourselves because that's, that's one of the biggest detriments to our personality. And I say our just as a, a general overview. I don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but it's, is the fact that we always put ourselves last, right? We always, that resiliency is, is a detriment to us if we don't manage it because we can drive ourselves right off, right off the cliff because we always put ourselves last. Oh, you know, oh, I'll, I'll sleep next week. I'll just keep, you know, keep plugging on and, and to be able to introduce people to this world. Um, I think I, I said it the other day, I was talking to somebody and I said, it would be like me telling somebody who's never played baseball before. Um, Hey, I want you to try baseball out, but I want you to go practice with a professional team. Right. And, and that, that gap of talent or, or know-how is, is absolutely, you know, frightening for us because we're in a business where we have to know what we're doing all the time. Right. We, we constantly get better and then we have to have an answer for every problem. And, and so to tell someone that you're going to go pro right away without even ever touching a baseball is, is absolutely, you know, frightening to even think. And, and so, but we use that in the same sense as you've never heard of mental health before. You've never heard of any of these terms before. And now I want you to go talk to it. And it's like for somebody who's always in that lane of understanding and knowing what to do. And you're going to tell them like, Hey, let's just, let's just jump the gun here and go full bloat. And it's like, well, that's, that's not going to, that's not something that I'm going to entertain because I'm not going to put myself out there unless I have some type of, of understanding. And so that's, that's kind of the niche that I've kind of fallen in is introducing people into this world of, of mental health and, and what it is, what it looks like, you know, and then just be able to relate it to some of the guys, um, that don't know, because that was my thing is I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what these feelings were. And I just kept with that resiliency and I just kept plugging forward and, oh, it'll, it'll fix itself. Eventually I'll get over it. And, and what that does is it just starts you down that cascade of, of just not, not yourself. And you get into that world. Of, I'm not good at anything anymore. I, I don't understand why I'm even here. And, and that's, that's really the, the reoccurring thing that I, that I kind of went through and have seen people since go through that. And, and it really drives on the point of just how purposeful our lives have to be for us to find happiness. Well, I think what I was thinking about this morning is if you think of purpose on a linear scale, the other end would be burden. So most people are kind of in the middle. You know, they're taking care of their, their wife and their kids, but maybe their profession isn't making a huge dent in the world, but, you know, they're in status quo. 
you have the responders, the teachers, the military members, you know, the doctors, the nurses, people that are actually, you know, their work is making someone's life better. And that's on the service side. That's a really strong sense of purpose. Well, now you slide that scale all the way back where a responder has lost that purpose. And that's their very DNA is to serve and to try and make people's days better. And now they slip back to being a, or perceiving that they're a burden, a recipient of service. I think that's what makes it so crushing when someone who's wearing a uniform finds himself, you know, with, with not just no purpose, but feeling like a burden. It's like the other end of the scale. Yeah, one one hundred percent, and it, and it really, <clears throat> it it really is interesting when you start, um, you know, diving into the research of it and 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 how the brain works and everything like that, and then being able to relate it to the fire service directly and showing people, you know, how how those little moments where you used to find joy in things as, you know like the kitchen table or, you know, working out with your buddies or, you know, the things that you do for fun at home and, and all those things. And they, you see them start to slowly fade away as you go down this road towards burden, like you're saying. And, and that's, that's where I've really kind of, you know, put myself, you know, in that, that realm of, you know, helping people find joy in their home lives again and finding joy at work again and, and really, you know, getting out of that negative headspace of, you know, just kind of changing the way that we, that we think or, you know, what cognitive restructuring is the fancy word for it, but it's, it's really kind of setting yourself up for success at work rather than getting stuck in that negative headspace or just, you know, it, it's so easy to do, especially with, you know, just the negativity in the world as a whole, um, you know, or like I, I, I joke around with guys that getting stuck in the scroll hole, which is, you know, just the, the social media stuff. And, and then just, you know, it just piles on that negativity every day. I mean, if it's, if you want to find it, it's there, you can, you can find the negative about everything and, and just getting guys out of that headspace of that, that constant negativity and really starting to find, you know, both joy at home because that's where, you know, like I tell guys, it's, that's what we do all this for, right? Like, you know, yes, we enjoy the job, but at the end of the day, we're getting paid for providing a service to provide for our family. And that, and that's the forefront of what we started doing in the first place. And when that gets disconnected and we start not really having a purpose because you know, it's, it's causing negative thoughts at work, negative thoughts at home, and it just kind of all starts to crumble. You know, it's really focusing on that purpose because that's what drives us. And so that's what we really have to be able to identify because your, your purpose may change, you know, just like when you're a single, single guy, you know, 20, 20 years old or so, and you know, the sky's the limit and, and, and you don't really have any, goals or priorities because it's just you know flying by the seat of your pants and then as you grow older and you get more um more things that rely on you you change you shift your your priorities and your goals and your purpose and and so really un understanding and identifying that purpose and 
being able to find joy in that purpose, um, I think is a lot of times what ends up happening is because they get you get stuck in that negative headspace and then it's just a, a deep dark hole that's hard to get out of just in this this world that we live in. Um, and what you know, unfortunately, what what clickbait that you see every day on the social media sites is is usually all negative. It's hard to find some positivity in that and and it's when you go down that road of of disengaging from people, that's the road that invites you in is that that negative, you know, stream. And uh and so it's it's just really important for people to stay self-aware and and be you know, able to to identify where they're at and and what they're doing. So I want to get to to firefight mentality specifically and how people can access you know your work from outside your your department. But just before we do on the Grab Lives podcast, you talked about um, some of the red tape. You got some support from some of the people wearing bugles, and then you got some opposition from some of the other members of the agency. And what I've seen more often than not, and it's very very heartbreaking, is people will pay lip service towards being a solution for this but when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road you know there's a lot of scurrying involved um and you know, they're just looking to check a box and move on and actually you know truly do the work so talk to me about you know the, the 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 highs and the lows of your journey trying to get it from your mind to the men and women in uniform in la uh yeah so it, it you know starting off with with the powerpoint and and just going around i mean it's it's, it was really just, you know, my thoughts on a, on a paper, uh, or I mean, a, a PowerPoint that I'd, you know, done the research to, to figure it out and how to, how to relate it. And so I started just giving it, um, around to the fire stations and, and, uh, and so it, it started gaining some traction and there was, you know, some positive things to guys, you know, reaching out to me and saying, Hey, you know, this helped me out. And, and that was kind of the, the, the really, what I thought was like, okay, this is cool. Um, and then what started to happen, cause my, my focus group when I started all of this was the guys similar amount of time with me, you know, 15 to 25 years on the job, kind of run down, had a couple of things happen during COVID. So you're kind of, you know, lacking purpose. And, and that's kind of what I was focusing at. But what I started to see was that the, the younger members, um, were, were reaching out to me as well. Um, and, and I had a, a really tough time, uh, relating to them, um, simply for, you know, call it generational gap, call it, um, you know, just a, a, a different, you know, upbringing and, and just experience level. And so that's when the podcast kind of came into my world is because one of the guys that would reach out to me said, Hey, you got to check out this podcast. And I go, Hey, these are a couple of younger guys. And, and I was like, Hey, maybe this could work. I, I've never done a podcast before. You know, maybe this would be a, the kind of the, the conduit between the, the old and the young. And, and so what's really crazy is, is up until the podcast, um, I had just been kind of a, a traveling road show. You know, I had my little PowerPoint on a, on a thumb drive and I was going from station to station and it was kind of, you know, I'd had some pushback from the department on, you know, Hey, you don't, you don't really have any uh, like clinician background or training or anything like that. And, and so I just kind of, kind of took it with a grain of salt and just kept doing my thing. 
And, uh, and so until I had gotten the, the blessing of the, the actual fire chief, um, she was very awesome and, and said, whatever you want, let's do this thing. And, and then obviously it fell into the bureaucracy after that, um, as big departments often do. Um, you know, it, it kind of just, it falls into the, the world of approval. I guess you would say, you know, where it's, oh, I got to get so-and-so's approval and this approval and I'll email you. And it just kind of gets, you know, convoluted and lost. And, and that's kind of what happened. And, and, and so I kind of, you know, just kept plugging along and, uh, and trying different avenues. And, and then this, this podcast, um, hit and, uh, and so, you know, shout out to the Grab Lives podcast and, and they really, it took me beyond that that really goal of just reaching out to the guys in my fire department and, and just took it, you know, nationally. And obviously I'm sitting here talking to you today, which is absolutely insane to me. Um, I just got done, um, helping a guy from Saskatchewan, uh, fire rescue, you know, put a PowerPoint together for his department. And, and it's, it's really, um, just, you know, turn the purpose up to 11 and, and it really, um, you know, showed me that, you know, maybe my, uh, my suitcase of, uh, of, of widgets is, uh, is worth something. And, uh, and so, yeah, I just been plugging away. And, and what's funny is from that same bureaucracy, since it's gotten bigger, I've had some calls where, you know, they're reaching back out to me like, Oh, Hey, you know, I, I, I wanted to get with you. I've been meaning to call you kind of thing. And, and, and I just, you know, like I said, I, I take it with a grain of salt because I know I've been around long enough to understand how that bureaucracy works and how that world works. And it's, you know, the flavor of the week stuff. And they got a thousand different things to deal with. And, and I, I totally get that. Um, and so that's why I'm I'm so thankful for the people that have stepped out of out of their, um, you know, comfort zone or out of their, you know, perceived roles and and really taking a chance on me um because there has been some chiefs um the you know the gold badge level that have that have taken taken some shots and 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 put me out there and uh so thank you to all of them and and it's just continuing to grow um i actually uh next month uh in july uh, i've got a couple of days at the union hall um doing the, the presentation um, that they okayed me to do. And, and it's just, uh, like I said, it's a slow, low, slow process, but as more and more people, you know, get the message and, and start to share it on their own. Um, cause that's the thing too, is I, you know, I've forwarded my PowerPoint all over the country. Um, because it's, you know, like I always say it's, I'm not the, I'm not the message message. Like it's not me, Bo Porter out there, you know, slang and snake oil. It's the fact that I want to empower people to be able to share this with their own department because every department, whether it's, you know, your specific entity of, of military service or law enforcement or, um, fire department, volunteer, um, it's the fact that you're going to have your own niche that you're going to be able to, to do and connect with your people. And so if, you know, the research that I've done and the PowerPoint that I put together aids you in doing that, I'm all for it. 
Um, and it, it's the, you know, the, the reason I don't, you know, put my name on the PowerPoint. I don't, you know, claim to, you know, have any, you know, quotes or anything like that on the PowerPoint. It's strictly just information. It's all bibliographed. Um, because I think it's so important. The one thing that I've always told, um, the clinicians that have helped me along the way is I've always been self-doubting as far as like, why me? Like who, what makes me so special? And, and they'd always told me like, you, you don't understand how much you're worth until somebody puts a price tag on you. Right. And I, and I didn't really understand that when they first told me that until this thing started rolling and I started having people reach out to me and say, you know, I, I can't believe I thought I was the only one, um, you know, the same feeling that I had. And, and it's like, it just, it just drives you, which I, I'm sure, you know, you could speak to as, as far as, you know, 700 podcasts deep. Um, you know, you just, you don't know the impact you can make until you put your stuff out there and, and just keep driving forward. No matter how many people tell you no, you know, knowing the importance of it and, and knowing that something's got to change. Um, because, you know, and, and I talked about it a little bit on the, the previous podcast, but it was that, that feeling that I had where it was, you just keep getting these roadblocks put in front of you. And, and, and it's like the importance level that I felt this entire time was, it was like, I just need people to know that they're not alone, that this feeling that you get when you're at your, your lowest and darkest is that feeling that you're the only one, that you're the only one that's ever felt like this, the only person that's, you know, nobody else is going to understand. And and the thing I want to put out there is the fact that I do understand. I have been there. And there are people just like you. And and really bring home, you know, that, that so-called brotherhood that that we've been let down by in whatever my headspace that we're at, just redefining that into, you know, waiting for that special, you know, whether you call it whatever your department puts it, you know, special notice or, or department bulletin of, oh my gosh, they're going to take this mental health stuff seriously, right? That's never going to come. And because it's so convoluted with that bureaucracy of, you know, of, of, you know, approval um, to where, you know, the, the only people, the best person that knows what you're going through is the person sitting next to you. And if you can have that availability to talk to them and, and, you know, they've been on the same calls you've been on, they've experienced the same things you have and really start opening up the conversation and knowing what to say or what not to say and, and really making it okay to talk to the people that you care about the most. Um, and, and being able to share, um, and not be, I don't want to say not be afraid of, of the results, but it's more of the fact that you start to develop a, a knowledge base in it. The fact that it's like, oh, this is okay, you know, and, and these stress relieving activities are okay. You know, it's okay to go to the station and talk about the yoga that I did on the off day or, or, you know, the cold plunging or the sauna that I just bought to help me with this. Um, and it's like breaking through that barrier of of making yourself better and being self-aware, I think, is the 
the biggest thing that I want to bring to the table is, is the fact that you, you make it okay to want to make yourself better and, and just break down, you know, the walls that have been put up over the years. Cause just really quick, I want to touch on the fact that the new, the new problem mindset, right? Like the old timers, they always want to talk about like, oh man, this new age stuff, you know, these, these new guys, they bring all these problems, you know, they got mental health issues and all this stuff. And, and, and I, at first in early on in this journey, I was one of them, 100%. I could tell you like, you know, I, I really did have that mindset, but as I went into this, the research of it and, and looking at it and, and being, you know, third generation firefighter and having, having that kind of history lesson to look at, I realized that this is not a new problem. What's new is the awareness of it. Um, because too often, um, and I can, you know, think of a couple guys right now that, that were truly fire gods to me early on in my career. Like just absolutely could walk on water. They were the all knowing, you know, all seeing and, and to see them now fast forwarding 20 years of having that old mindset of just plowing forward, you know, being alcoholics, being abusive, being, um, you know, distant from their families. And then you see them come into that retirement age and have, you know, no wife or on their fifth wife or having five, you know, alimony payments that they can't stop working or the kids have, have alienated themselves from them. and and it's like, this is the same problem. It's just the acceptance level of dealing with it. And, and the fact that it, it used to be okay for people in the military or law enforcement or first responders or, or, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, like you bring up, it, it was okay to be an alcoholic. It was okay to be abusive. And it's like, oh, that's just the way they are. You know, they're crazy. And it's like, until, the last, you know, 10 or 15 years when it really started, you know, diving into this mental health thing and, and realizing that we can be better. We can, we can be aware of what we're doing and, and there's, there's things out there to help us live a better life, be better at work, be more than empathetic to the patients we go on. And also the, the glaring thing is be more joyful at home and be more engaged with our families and our coworkers and really bring back that brotherhood that used to fall on just, you know, going to fires and hanging out with the boys and all that stuff to where we can bring back the brotherhood where we're, we're really focused on each other, you know, living, living joyful lives at work and at home and, and really just thriving through life. Um, rather than just surviving the day in and day out. Well, what you said about it's been there the whole time, if you actually look in history, I mean, I believe, I forget it is now, but but mentions of an element of PTSD go back thousands of years. There was, there was a certain time, a long, long time ago, we're in the text or the scripture from there. They talk about that. But you listen to, you know, a thousand yard stare, a soldier's heart, um, shell shock. Those terms have been there the whole time. Like you can't see and do some of the horrific things that people do in our profession or in the military 
without it affecting you. Only a sociopath wouldn't be affected and you're already broken. So it's still the same thing. But that also what you touched on is that it's, for me, it's that sense of urgency. I feel like in a lot of places, it's not like someone maliciously goes, you know, wakes up and goes, I'm going to oppose all wellness initiatives. But that's just the way we've devolved. I don't think our national union has done a very good job. I mean, the, the work week is a perfect example. You know, it's 2023 and we've got the corporate side realizing that a four day week is equally as productive. And we've got first responders working 80 hours because of mandatories. It's absolutely fucking insane. But for me, it, the, the analogy would be someone trapped under a car. All right, hold on. It's got a you know line on the ground. Everyone wear a traffic vest. Okay, we got to get the airbags. We got a crib. Sometimes it's time you just got to fucking four of you grab the side of the car, take the slack out, suspension, and drag the person out. You know what I mean? The same way as a cop runs towards a burning car and just smashes it with their baton and drags them out. You know, it's not an SOP, but when the check every box, you know, redundancy element might cause more harm than good sometimes it's time to go all right we've got to do it a different way and what i see more often than not is it's not organizations it's people like you like me like the navy seals and the sas and police officers and all those that i've had on the show who were just wearing the uniform but they looked around waiting for things to get better and they didn't so then they grabbed the torch themselves and was like well fuck it if no one else is going to do it i guess i'm going to be one of the people that does because People still keep dying. So this is the, you know, the, the element of red tape and box checking that drives me crazy is the longer we wait, the more funerals we go to, the more people that believe that they are weak and they are alone. And the next thing, you know, there's a, there's a coffin with an American flag or a British flag, an Australian flag, you know, a lot of people full of regret. Well, it's too fucking late then. So I think, you know, this is what's admirable about what you've done. You know, we're all servants. But some of us look around and go, the way the way it's happening, it just isn't working. It is not working. There's all this money, all these bugles or, you know, executive titles or whatever it is, but people are still dying. So, you know, it it we need all these people to take up the fight. And I think the other thing that we need is for all these people that are fighting to communicate with each other so we can circumnavigate the fragmented element of the American Fire Service and have a united fight and actually really, really, you know, make a difference. So the more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, whether it's you or Lionel in Canada or all these amazing, you know, people I've had that have been through their own trauma and decided to be part of the solution. If we can start interlocking those pieces, we can actually, you know, envelop the entire profession. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I tell guys all the time, you know, I have the, the worst business model ever, right? I, I'm not in it for the money and I want my purpose to go away in time by empowering other people. Um, you know, yeah, I hope that my phone never stops ringing because it's, it's always on and I'm, I'm, I'm here for whoever needs me. But at the same time, like the empowerment aspect of, you know, empowering other people to, to do the work and, and be okay with it. You know, that's, that's what I'm going for is, is, is to make it okay on the other side. So for people listening, how can they contact you and, you know, and as you mentioned, you know, get the PowerPoint sent to them with an understanding of how to present it in their department? Uh, yeah. So, um, and it's, it's crazy to even think about, but I, 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 the best way I found, um, was, uh, firefight mentality, um, is, um, is my Instagram. Um, you can, 
get me there anytime. Um, I try to, you know, set up things, the cool things that I hear guys that are, that are, uh, experiencing things, um, you know, stress relieving activities, whatever, what have you, I try to put those up on there. Um, and just kind of, you know, chronologically, uh, as, as I go through this journey, um, included on there. Um, but you can get, get me on there anytime. Um, and, uh, whether it's questions, whether it's for the PowerPoint, um, that I can email it to you, uh, help you get through something that you're going through with your department. Um, you know, I'm open all the time. Um, and so that's, that's the best way to get a hold of me and kind of start, um, just like I did with you, um, you know, start the dialogue and, and, and then fast forward, here we are. So, um, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to throw some quick closing questions at you before we go. I mean, as I will say in the intro, this is a combination of two, two conversations put together. So I think on total now, I've been talking for over two and a half hours, which is amazing. Um, so the first question, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Ooh. Um, well, obviously I'm going to recommend your book. It was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, it, it, it really was. Um, cause you, you do touch on a, a ton of stuff, um, that, that really, um, drives home the, the point here. Um, but uh, as far as a, a a book that I've um, not that I can name offhand. I mean, I, obviously I'm a nerd for all the uh, the military leadership books, and then taking that and and what I urge people to do if if they do get into the military leadership books and and read them, um, really really put mental health in there with all the other bravado. Um, and, and if you're going forward and you're promoting the captain or lieutenant, um, as other departments call it, um, and, and moving up the, the ladder, um, or just want to be, um, that locker room leader, um, and you read those books, um, really focus on adding that mental health aspect in it, um, the, the emotional intelligence, um, aspect, uh, to your leadership style. And it may, as awkward as it is the first couple of times that you do it, um, whether you're, you know, a, a newly promoted captain or a, an old salty dog. Um, if you start asking people how they are and not just the, the basic, you know, Oh, how are you doing today? Oh, good cap. Yeah. Okay. And on you go. But really, you know, sit them down and ask them, if you, Hey, you know, how's home life? How's, how was your time off? You know, and you will see a dramatic change very quickly because a lot of times all people need is just a little nudge or the opportunity um, to share and then just have that active listening. And so really like any of the books, you can apply it to any of those leadership books that are out there and just adding emotional intelligence into it and just being able to be an active listener for your guys. One of the things I've heard many, many times now is you ask, you know, how are you doing? But never ask it just once. Because it's amazing when you follow that, when they're like, yeah, I'm good. No, no, no. How are you really doing? And like you said, if you know there's a thing that's been troubling them, how's things with your wife? How's things with your, your son at the moment? That, it's a, it just takes that, ball, that, that wall down because the first time you can brush it off. The second time, it's almost like subconsciously like, oh, oh, okay, I, I actually have to engage in this conversation. So I've, I've found that over and over and over again. You know? And then the other philosophy that I love and it really kind of 
again, deconstruct some of the prejudice and stigma is rather than what's wrong with you, let's say the angry guy, you know, we've all been there, fucking burned out and pissed off and, you know, throwing things, um, you know, not what's wrong with you, what happened to you. That will actually humanize, you know, your anger, your whatever is, is, the, is the side effect, it's the response to a thing. And so what happened to you, and it might be, it happened today, it might be happened when you were six, but opening that door as well, I think is a very powerful way of initiating, you know, a, a um, vulnerable conversation. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. It's good. All right. Well, then what about films and documentaries? Any of those that you love to recommend? Um, as far as that have, have kind of helped me through, you know, kind of re relating um, and whatnot, Really, I just, uh, it's interesting once you dive into this world, um, you start to notice how much mental health is out there. And, and, and the, the one show that I think the TV show that I really thought took it to the next level was the show Navy Seals on, um, initially it was on CBS, but they went to Paramount. And over the last two seasons, they have really dove headlong into the mental health aspect of it um it's called seal team is actually what the name of it is but uh they've dove headlong into suicide um just through the military and i think it the the real message in that show has just been uh just an, really well done um and so it's it very interesting to me because it when it was on cbs they didn't really dive into it you know the corporate world um but the minute it went to paramount um, they were able to dive headlong and, and you could tell that they were really, whoever they were talking to, um, was in it because the, the things that they touched on, um, the feelings, the emotions, um, the isolation, um, was just really, really good. Um, how they, how they did it. I had uh, one of the actors, Justin Melanick, who plays the canine handler in that show on. So it's uh -huh. kind of interesting hearing from a, you know, production point of view, but I also know there's many actual Navy SEALs that are contributing. And in that community, the psychedelic Ibogaine, you know, element is is really, really gaining traction. So I think now, you know, the what were the quiet professionals and there's there's a, a time to be quiet and there's a time to advocate for your people. And I think it's it's great that that community is having a voice. Sometimes there's, you know, a narcissistic element, depending on which particular person, as is the fire service, as is law enforcement. But as a community opening up about that particular topic, I think it's it's amazing because now your average dude, just taking men for a second, can't go, oh, you know, talking about mental health, that's what pussies do. Well, you're telling me a Navy SEAL is a pussy? I don't think so. You know what I mean? So it's debunking that kind of two-dimensional Rambo Terminator masculinity that we were raised with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've, I've had that experience as well, just on my job with that, that old school mentality of, you know, come on, Bo, really, you know, what, I, I can't believe you're doing this. Um, and, and really going right at them, you know, and, 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 and calling them out for their BS. Um, and it's, it's a pretty interesting, uh, conversation, um, because it's, uh, you know, I, I have clout just from, from my, you know, where I've worked and stuff like that. And so it's, it's funny when you take that wall and start to really break it down, um, how uncomfortable they get real quick. Um, cause usually the ones that are most outspoken against it are the ones most in need of it. 
Hundred percent. I've seen the same thing because that's that that kind of hyper triggered reflex is usually coming from anxiety and depression within. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the next question, speaking of of people, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh man, um, I think the the best person is actually uh, one of my buddies' uh, wives. Um, she does. Um, she's a uh, clinician. She's a, a doctor uh, in psychology, and she does a. Uh, she runs what three offices now of marriage family therapists. Um, and she being a, a wife of a, of a, a firefighter and having that kind of inner, inner pocket. Um, you know, a lot of the clinicians that she employs, um, are all directly correlated rather than, you know, taking a, a class or something to, to deal with us uh, as first responders. Um, the fact that there's even a class is hilarious to me because it shows like how, how truly, uh, special we are. Um, <laughs> <Air but quotes. laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, she's, uh, been in, you know, just a, a huge, huge influence, uh, for me, you know, not only, you know, finding me a therapist early on, um, but then also just been a great, um, sounding board during this whole journey. Uh, for me, and obviously she doesn't even know that I'm, I'm recommending it right now, but, <laughs> but she's going to, but, uh, but she's just been awesome to, to soundboard ab- about, you know, whether it was the PowerPoint, you know, getting off the ground, um, as things come up, um, with people that reach out to me and just being able to, a person that I trust when guys are hurting, um, to send them, to send them her way. Cause she's, uh, she's the real deal, um, uh, when it comes to, you know, getting in front of this stuff and, and helping guys. And, and, uh, and so I would, I would think having her on here and being able to talk nationally would be just absolutely great because she's got a lot of experience, um, dealing with us. Um, and then, uh, and then the also being directly correlated with the fire service as far as not just being a clinician in the field, but actually being the wife of a, of a firefighter as well. And what was her name? Lindy Venasta is her name. L Y N D E E V E N O S T A N S T A. Brilliant. And I can send you your I can send you your information too. That'd be great. Thank you. Now, I mean, that's an interesting dynamic to be a spouse and a clinician, a culturally competent clinician. That'd be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah, that would that would definitely be a, a big one for sure. All right. Well, then the very last question before we underline how people can find you: What do you do to decompress? <laughs> Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a, a fairly, uh, new, new one for me. Uh, now only doing this, you know, close to a year and a half, two years. Um, as, as it, the uptick of people calling me and, 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 you know, podcasts and presentations and all that stuff. Um, it's been new for me to, to be able to kind of shed it. Um, you know, and, and see myself. Uh, cause I had somebody ask me the other day, you know, how, how do you, you know, how do you deal with all of this? You know, people calling you and asking for help and all that stuff. And, and my thing is, is I, I see myself as that middleman of, of helping people get the help that they need, um, rather than the savior mentality, um, and really keeping myself out of that headspace of, you know, taking it all on and, and being the one to help that person and, and being, you know, 
taking it, yeah, just taking it all on myself. And so, um, that helps. And then obviously I'm a huge proponent in contrast therapy, um, with the sauna and the cold plunge. Um, that has really, I mean, just groundbreaking to the, the point that I, you know, went out and bought it all for my house. Cause I was like, you know, it, it's a big deal for me for sleep. Um, that's the, the biggest thing that I find it, um, helpful is, you know, before I go to bed, I hop in the sauna and then, uh, do the cold plunge and, and, and drift off to sleep faster than ever before. Um, in the cold plunge, that sounds dangerous. Oh no, not in the cold. <laughs> plunge. No. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the day. No, it's, uh, no, I just do the, the contrast between the sauna and the cold plunge, um, 15 minutes and two minutes. Um, and, uh, it really helps bring down the day and kind of just clear out everything. Um, I also, you know, as far as stress relieving activities, everything from earthing to, uh, I've done the, uh, the float pods. A lot of guys find solace in those, um, the salt, salt water float pods. Um, a lot of guys, you know, I'm a big proponent for, for yoga. Um, I found Hatha yoga is my favorite personally, um, simply because of the order of it. Um, being a, an OCD guy, uh, like I am, I, I like order and, uh, and, and so with Hatha yoga, it's the exact same thing every single time. Um, they also call it 26 and two, it's 26, uh, poses and two breathing exercises every single class. And so in my OCD mind, that made a lot more sense than, um, some of the other ones, uh, you know, practices as far as, you know, whether it's vinyasa, whether it's power, um, they kind of are all over the place depending on the teacher. And, you know, my thing is, is if you find solace in it, do it. Um, and then that's really, you know, my thing is it's like before it was always, you know, and even still you go to the kitchen table and you're, you're talking about what you did on the four day or, or, um, you know, your days off and, and guys kind of snickered and laughed or, you know, like you're doing what? And, uh, and it's funny now because being able to get out there and, and talk about that stuff, you know, yeah, you may be a, the butt of, of a couple of jokes, you know, as we all do when, when we hear something different. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've heard from guys and, and it's been my experience as well is it may start off with a couple of jeers and jokes and all that stuff. And then next thing you know, the guy's coming up to you going, Hey dude, uh, where, where'd you pick up that sauna that you got? Um, and so it's just, it's, it's funny, um, how that works and just, you know, that, that natural instinct of, of, of joking and jeering. Uh, when something different comes in, but then when you, when you start telling guys how, how useful it could be, uh, they, they turn around real quick. So it's, it's pretty funny. So. Well, I just want to touch on something that you mentioned a second ago, and this is what I observed when I first started this. So one of my early guests, Dustin Hawkins, for example, who's his department's chaplain, he has extremely powerful, um, you know, mental health story himself, probably one of the first ones that really kind of bore his soul to the audience um and he ended up changing his number because of the number of phone calls that he got and it kind of mirrors what i the, the analogy i used in my book which was the green mile you know michael clark duncan taken on everyone's pain and ultimately it kills him and so this is i think why these conversations are so important is you do find that one person becomes a beacon and then everyone goes to them. And I'm not saying for a second that you shouldn't, if you're hurting and that's the one person you feel that understands, reach out. But the more of us that start to have this awakening, the more of us 
will be able to help others when we're doing okay because it's it's a it's a you know it's a seesaw some days you know you're having a good day some days i'm having a good day and the goal is to kind of lift each other up when you're the strong one and someone else is struggling so i think this is a really important point we do find that some of the the kind of figures in in that space get you know like blake from next wrong they get they get all these calls from people the more of us that are able to have the courage to shift into this mindset be vulnerable ourselves tell our own story and then be there for other people the less um less of a weight it's going to put on these individual figures that have already done that so for me again that service element the more of us that can step up and say here's my story it's not as bad as steve over there but here's you know when i was struggling i didn't put have a gun in my mouth but I thought my marriage was over and I thought I was going to lose my kid or whatever it was. And now you have an army of people. So now you only have two or three people leaning on you because everyone is there for each other. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's really important um, to get that, that honesty and that, that connectivity from individuals too. Like, you know, it's, I think the way our departments work and how close knit we are um, in whatever unit we're in, whether it's military law enforcement, fire service, what have you, you know, we, we have a very, you know, one, it's our department walls and then even our station walls, right. Whether wherever we work, whatever station we're at, you know, we have that, that kind of close knit community and safeguarded thing. So that's why it's so important for people to share their story because that one person that can connect to that person inside those walls, um, you know, that, that should be the person that empowers themselves and, and puts themselves out there. Um, because it, you know, as the more, oh, I should say, the more specialized your job is in what you do, um, the, the smaller that close knit gets to where you can be effective, right? Because you, you, you listen to, you know, somebody talk and they're in, you know, wherever and you go, ah, oh, that ain't like me. That's something different. And you may not be able to, te- you know, hit that person. And so that's why, you know, being that, that conduit and kind of niche that I've kind of filled is really empowering other people. You know, I'll, I'll send you the PowerPoint. I'll, I'll do whatever. Um, because, because you, just like you think that I'm, you know, something for doing this, I think you're something for even reaching out to me and, and you should be the one go forward. Um, because just like I used to say, you know, who am I? Who am I to, to talk like this? And, and it could be, you know, you be the next one that, that assists your, you know, department, your station, your friends. Um, and really that self empowerment to, really help each other on an individual basis um, every day and, and, you know, be aware, you know, like the, the military talks about self-aid buddy aid, right. Um, where you get injured, you, you know, you treat yourself and then you treat your buddies. Well, the same thing goes with this, right. Treat yourself, get yourself right. Um, and then help out your buddies. Um, and, and, and that's what, you know, the one thing that I could, say weeding through all of the bureaucracy of everything is is it's it's up to us you know and and like that famous you know uh pj saying of you know nobody's coming um you know or or 30 seconds out um 
aspect of it is like if we deal with it ourselves on an individual basis and then help fix our team and then our team helps fix our department and our department helps fix the entire fire service and on and on and on. Um, you know, it's, it's about that, that helping out your buddies. Um, and, and really, I think that's the most genuine, um, honest, uh, evaluation you can do is, is get yourself right and then get your buddies right. I couldn't agree more. Well, I just want to reiterate again where people can find you online. So, um, firefight mentality on Instagram is the best place. That is correct. Yes. Firefight mentality. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Well, Bo, I want to say thank you. I know we had to break this up because as people listening to this now realize this is a three hour conversation in the end and we had some uh, things that we had to take care of at the end of the, the last conversation. But I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and so courageous with your story today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, James. I, I really appreciate you, you know, for what you do. Um, the book is incredible. If everybody listening, go read his book. It's legit. Um, and it touches on a lot of stuff that's that's prevalent nationwide, if not worldwide. It's it's really good. 